This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In the first of a two-part episode, Ian and I begin our deep dive into the official optional and variant rules from the Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide published for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we now stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Um, so yeah, are you ready to get started? I believe I am. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, today what we are talking about are variant and optional rules in fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, mostly because we, we like to say that we're a TTRPG podcast because we like to be open-minded, but we do have our favorites. <laughs> uh, fifth edition D&D is definitely like the core system that we'll talk about from like a systems perspective. Um, but one of the things to uh, remember about a lot of the ways that we look at the game is that this lens can be applied to pretty much any TTRPG experience. The the key thing with what we're talking about today is tuning your game system to create a specific experience for your table. So, you know, if you want to run, say, uh, for fifth edition Curse of Strahd, you may make uh, certain choices to which variant and optional rules that you allow or turn on versus running a more heroic adventure like Tyranny of Dragons or Storm King's Thunder. Um, now, just to kind of clarify the topic a little bit, uh, there is I, I would like to make a distinction here between optional rules, variant rules, and homebrew rules. And we're really only talking about the first two former. Um, so, And this may conflict a little bit with what the book says, but this is the definitions we're going to be operating under. So uh, for our purposes, in 5th edition D&D, optional rules and variant rules are official options that are provided by official D&D products. Um, Homebrew rules are, you know, as they suggest, they're kind of uh, custom rules that are created by dms or by the community in order to again create a specific experience or rebalance the game for uh for to to be more fun or to be more engaging but really we're looking at the official content today we may do another episode in the future discussing uh house rule content so the difference between optional and variant rules optional rules are additional options that don't change the underlying system of play. So for example, um, you know, if you allow multi-classing in your game, that's an option that's going to allow players to be more powerful, but whether or not you turn multi-classing on or off isn't going to affect the underlying game mechanics that are at the table. Whereas variant rules are affecting the system from a mechanical perspective. So an example of, say, a variant rule 
is uh, encumbrance, where normally uh, a character can carry uh, a number of, or an amount of equipment equal to 15 times their strength ability score. Whereas variant encumbrances, it reduces that to only five times. And if you carry more than five times your strength score and weight of equipment, then you have a speed penalty of 10. And if you carry more than 10 times your character's strength capacity, then you, um, you, uh, you now have disadvantage on certain checks and everything. So the encumbrance would be a variant rule because you're making a switch from a systems perspective, whereas an optional rule can be added on without changing the underlying system. So I, I guess we'll start off with, uh, with the player's handbook because the, the main sources where you find the variant and optional rules we're going to be talking about are the player's handbook, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, so to start off with, uh, in the player's handbook, um, I kind of grouped these first few under the same umbrella, which is character creation options, meaning that these are options outside of the base system that you can use to create your character. Um, so some of them are more well-known than others to be optional. So for example, um, variant human as an option, um, multi-classing and feats, and then uh, custom lineage from, from uh, Tasha's Cauldron and uh, custom origin. Uh, these are all optional rules for character creation to allow you to fine tune your character. Um, and actually another one is customizing ability scores. So what's commonly referred to as point buy in the fifth edition community uh, is actually a, uh, an optional rule. So uh, the default rule is to roll your stats. And then they say, if you, if you don't like the idea of randomly generating your stats, we have a, a standard array that you can use. Uh, if you want to tweak your ability scores for a specific character concept, you can also use uh, point by, right? Now, it's funny because uh, when you play like uh, Adventurers League, which is sanctioned play, you're not allowed to randomly generate your ability scores. You have to use a standard array or custom ability scores. This is also what I use at my table. Um, now, what's interesting about this is which rules you decide to turn on or off of these. Uh, will affect the power level of the player characters that come to your table. Now, that being said, I find that turning them off can a lot of times make for more boring gameplay, especially if you have players that play a lot. So for beginners, it's a it's not a bad idea to actually have them do single class without feats, just to kind of start to understand uh, some of the base mechanics, some of the class dynamics in the game. But I mean, I, I always play with all of these options turned on uh, and you get a lot of varied gameplay at the table. That being said, every time you add a new option for a player, uh, you do change what the game's dominant strategy is. So when Tasha's came out and custom uh, lineage was offered as a race option, pretty much all of the optimization community went that's just the best one now, <laughs> which to me isn't the best game design. And uh, I, I do think that you can start to, th this is why we're discussing which options to use, which options not to use, because we're trying to create the best experience for our table, which may be different than your table. 
So, uh, so about character creation, do you have anything to add for there, Ian? I feel a little, I'll be honest, I feel a little underprepared for today. So I'll probably um, be mostly just reading the words in the book. And after that, you give your thing and then I'll listen to you and say something off of that. How's that sound? <laughs> I did. This is going to be an educational experience for me. <laughs> Definitely. So having played a lot of D&D with a lot of DMs that uh, have different preferences for character creation, one thing that I've learned through gameplay is I find uh, standard array and point by to be much more interesting because you have an it it takes away from having asymmetrical power dynamics by chance right at character creation. So I've definitely played in games where one player rolls really high stats, and because of that they contribute more to the story because every time a character that plays really low stats tries to do something creative, the dice statistically roll against them. And a lot of times it can make a lot of decision-making in the game feel less meaningful because the dice are set up to fail. Whereas when you're playing with a standard array or, uh, or a point by, you get to tune your character to what their strengths and flaws are going to be. Um, and I find that much more interesting because now you can develop party dynamics from a session zero or character creation, where it's like, I may develop a character that's like high dex, high intelligence, low charisma. And Ian develops a character that's high strength, high charisma to offset it. So we kind of work well together. My, my advice is if you're nervous about turning on the options of character creation, I play at very few tables where they're like, you know, no feats, no multi-classing. I've played at tables like that before. It's very, very rare. Feats, I feel like, are less powerful than multi-classing and can still spice up your game. Multi-classing is really the optional rule that will confuse everybody at the table, most likely. So um, out of all of these character creation options, I think multi-classing is the one that takes the most explanation. It takes the most practice to get good at. Uh, and it's also the easiest one to misuse to create an unplayable character. Um, usually with feats, uh, it's there are times where you may choose a feat instead of an ability score improvement and become a little less effective. But I find that it's multi-classing where like somebody's like, I want to be a wizard barbarian and not understand how those classes mechanics interfere with one another. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you consider uh, spell points uh, for casters, spell points and spell slots. I actually don't know how the spell points work. I guess you just gain spell points based on the caster type that you're multiclassing into. Uh, it's not like you get like, well, no, because that would make sense too. Because uh, in like, if you multiclass a sorcerer and a bard, they're both using regular spell slots. It's not like your source, not like your sorcerer warlock combos where you have packed magic and um, sp uh, spell slots. So I think that uh, that would probably that's probably going to be really confusing for a lot of people. It's like, are these separate spell slots? Are they the same? Do I add them on to like you know? There even though there's a table, tables are generally confusing if you don't know how to read them. And so multiclassing is definitely. Uh, the most confusing aspect of, of optional roles for me. I remember when I first built Eld as a Sorlock and I built him as um, 
uh, six warlock and, and one sorcerer, which is really bad, by the way. Don't do that. Reverse it. Um, and uh, and I didn't I didn't understand anything about like what what it meant to be a packed magic user versus a spellcasting um, character. So, yeah, definitely agree with you on that one. So, yeah, um, it's just a reminder there. Uh, if you want to like, especially if you're trying to teach new players or you're a new DM and you just want to see what happens. It could be it could be really interesting for your game to turn off the optional rules. Your players may not like it as much. Um, like I, I definitely remember a DM saying, you know, no multi-classing, uh, only PHB material, no feats. And I was like, all right, well, I have very few options now. <laughs> but um, it also did change the relative power levels of certain classes. So for example, fighters were a much less attractive option because without feats now basically they get some more stat bumps and that's pretty much it um whereas uh other classes became more powerful because now that i'm not worried about feats or multi-classing like paladins are actually pretty strong just kind of on their own or barbarians um that a lot of the front-loaded classes like that uh rogues are another one that tend to be a little more front-loaded um, it, it did change the power level of, of certain classes. So um, moving on to the, to the next one, uh, we're actually going to be looking at the other variant rules that are now in the player's handbook. So these aren't options where you can just add, subtract them. These are changes that you as the dungeon master can make to the base system. All right. So our next variant that we're going to be taking a look at is on page 144 of the player's handbook, and it's uh, equipment sizes. I found it. It's in the green box because that's where the variant rules go. Variant equipment sizes. In most campaigns, you can wear or use any equipment that you find on your adventures, uh, within the bounds of common sense, that is. For example, a burly half-orc won't fit into a halfling's leather armor and a gnome uh, would be swallowed up in a cloud giant's elegant robe. The DM can impose more realism if they wish. For example, a suit of plate armor made from uh, made for one human might not fit another one without significant alterations. And a guard's uniform might be visibly ill-fitting when an adventurer tries to wear it as a disguise. Using this variant, when adventurers find armor, clothing, and similar items that are made to be worn, they might need to visit an armorsmith, tailor, leather worker, or similar expert to make the item wearable. The cost for such work varies from 10 to 40% of the market price of the item, and the DM can either roll 1d4 times 10 or determine the increase in cost based on the extent of the alterations required. So I think this is an interesting one, um, especially for like a, a more traditional game. I think that what this rule is really highlighting, it's actually not about the rule itself, that I'm going to be making a lot of comments on. It's uh, D&D's shifting identity and genre, um, where I think a lot of these rules that you find in the player's handbook were assuming a certain style of play of six to eight encounters per long rest um, with maybe two or three short rests in between those encounters. And if you especially look at the dungeon crawly modules, so like you look at Tales of the Awning Portal and you look at something like Tomb of Horrors uh, or Tomb of Annihilation, um, anything where you're, uh, you're traveling through a dungeon and collecting loot, um, 
I think that this is an interesting mechanic that makes sense. Uh, when it comes to magic items, I think that this can get really complicated. So if you find like a dwarven mail and it doesn't fit you, <laughs> uh, you have to get it like repurposed. Uh, I do think that this can be a great hook for future adventures. So it's, you know, I, I found this really cool set of armor, this really cool shield, but it doesn't fit me. Um, can we go to, we have to now discover a, a craftsperson that can uh, make alterations so that I can now use this magic item. I think that's kind of a cool thing. Um, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on this one? I think it's interesting. Uh, it is definitely more realistic. And I tend to go towards more of the gritty realism side of D&D &D just because I like the challenge, I think, that it imposes on the characters. Uh, obviously, it depends on your players and how they feel about certain certain rules and whether or not they are appropriate for what they're interested in in the game. Um, I will say that uh, this rule, along with many, many of the other variant and optional rules that we're going to be looking at, uh, do deal with realism versus escapism. So the question is, how much realism do you want in your escapism? That's something we've talked about before. And this rule addresses that by the fact that clothes are still clothes and you might not fit them. Uh, so I think it's uh, I think it's definitely pretty cool. I don't know if I'm I'm going to employ this one in my games, which is really what I'm thinking about when I look at a lot of these, um, because even though it depends on the players and such, like I said, um, this particular rule uh, just you know, it's, it's bookkeeping a little bit, you know, you have to, uh, unless you're looking to make it for a quest line, like you were saying, John, um, it does sometimes add unnecessary bookkeeping, as we'll see with uh, a lot of these rules. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. One other thing here uh, that we can consider when looking at variant and optional rules, which is that each of these rules kind of reflects changes that may have been made or unmade during the development of the game when the creators were just, you know, making it up from the ground up. And I think that's pretty interesting. So it kind of almost tells a story of the game designer's own experiences when running this game and playing this game. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, more about uh, what those experience, experiences might have been. Yeah, actually, you bring up a few really good points. So I do know in uh, older editions of D&D, &D, bookkeeping was a part of the game's interaction. Um, like, I, I remember listening to WebDM talk about they used to have like party roles for players, like one of the players would be a cartographer. So as you're going through the dungeon, it was one person's job to keep track of what the rooms were, what was in the rooms, and actually draw it out in real time. Nowadays, with so many digital tools, a lot of times we'll just pull up the map and have the map slowly reveal itself. But it used to be somebody's job to listen to the descriptions, translate it, and then check with the DM that what they drew was correct. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that the newer products, uh, Minsk and Boo's Journal of Villainy, for the first time in fifth edition has magic item crafting rules and they're not even that in depth, but the reception from the D and D community was overwhelmingly positive of finally, we have more bookkeeping in our game basically. So a lot of people who find nostalgia for that bookkeeping 
um, really enjoy rules like this where it's very specific uh, number crunchy. Whereas I, I think you're right, Ian. I think that what they did is looked at the legacy of D&D and which rules were considered more advanced and which rules were core for feeling the storytelling core of what the game is. And so they pruned a lot of these optional rules or variant rules. Um, and really, again, this is where I was saying it was going to conflict. This is listed as a variant rule in this game. To me, this is an optional rule. It doesn't change how a it doesn't change a player's options when it comes to combat or social interaction or anything, but it does change uh, like what they, it, it does change the DM's options of what kind of loot to give and then what additional obstacles may come to using that loot. So I, I do think that a lot of these variant rules are, hey, do you remember old school D&D or the edition that you started with? If you want to keep playing like this, this is, um, this is a callback to that, that you can integrate into your 5e game. But for new DMs that are that have enough to keep track of, don't don't worry about it. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think that this is really good, actually, in a way, because it integrates uh, what could have been a rather divisive community uh, together uh, into one form of solidarity, because a lot of people who play D&D uh, were introduced to it in like advanced D&D or first edition or second edition and these or third edition even and uh, those tended to be a lot more number crunchy like you said. Uh, the thing with fifth edition is that a lot of people don't like that there are not as many defined rules and that the DM has to come up with a ruling on the fly sometimes or justify it through uh, circumstantial ruling uh, and this gives like it, it sets like precedent uh, if you want to, you know, go down a certain path in your game. Um, and what I mean by it integrates the community is that um, I, I kind of believe that 5th edition and 5e, um, I, I'm not saying they, it can't be improved, uh, as we see with like 5.5 that might be coming up, uh, or whatever they're going to call it, is uh, it, it's not that it can't be improved, but I think that it represents like some of the more refined stages of the game and its development. And so a lot of people who are going to be playing D&D for the first time or just picking it up are not going to be picking up third edition or fourth edition. They're going to be picking up 5e because it's the latest one. And why would I go backwards when I can go forwards? So I, I think that this is good because it allows the people who were there from the beginning uh, to tag along for the ride, uh, especially with all the new imaginative content, like in second and first edition, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't, you would have never seen if it were not for 5e coming out. And, and I think that's pretty neat. Variant. Skills with different abilities. This one isn't in a green box, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so, Normally, your proficiency in a skill applies only to a specific kind of ability check. Proficiency in athletics, for example, usually applies to strength checks. In some situations, though, your proficiency might reasonably apply to a different kind of check. In such cases, the DM might ask for a check using an unusual combination of ability and skill. Uh, or you might ask your DM if you can apply a proficiency to a different check. 
For example, if you have to swim from an offshore island to the mainland, your DM might call for a constitution check to see if you have the stamina to make it that far. In this case, your DM might allow you to apply your proficiency in athletics and ask for a constitution athletics check. So if you're proficient in athletics, you might apply your proficiency bonus to the constitution check just as you would normally for a strength athletics check. Similarly, when your half-orc or barbarian uh, uses a display of raw strength to intimidate an enemy, your DM might ask for a strength intimidation check, even though intimidation is normally associated with charisma. And I really like this rule. This is definitely a good rule. It is honestly, it is the best rule. No, uh, but it is a great rule because where uh, a lot of people get stuck in this game is on these ability scores and in the uh, proficiency skills and such. Now, there are there is a place in time for where, uh, say, the intelligent person of the party, let's say it's the wizard, is the one who's most likely to succeed on the puzzle check. Uh, like if there's like a solution to a puzzle that they have to figure out through an ability check. And that's that's fine, but sometimes you don't have someone who's very smart in the party. Uh, so you are very intelligent in the party. Maybe they're wise, but they're not intelligent. So what do you do in that situation? Normally the PHB or the module that you're going through calls for uh, an investigation check but that's not wisdom-based, so what do you do? Well, you just switch it out. You add wisdom instead. And, and that allows the game to keep going without uh, being hindered by technicalities such as party composition. And you know, there's nothing wrong with if your players like that kind of gritty party composition where it's like, well, you guys don't have a wizard, so you just don't get to pass this puzzle. <laughs> then, then that's cool, that's fine, that's up to you. But it, it's just, uh, you know, it's not necessary if you are more concerned about uh, the storytelling rather than the mechanics of the game. Uh, you know, compared to Skyrim, for example, sometimes, uh, you know, when you're talking to somebody, you'll get options to intimidate or persuade. But if you don't have, you know, that skill, like it doesn't allow you to just say, oh, you get it anyway, because you are good in a different skill, right? So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, um, this is one of my favorite rules to consistently use at my table. Uh, I do know that Jeremy Crawford, who is the lead rules designer of 5th edition, uh, in an interview said of all the variant rules they designed, this is the one he employs most at his table. Um, and what I think it does is it allows for a greater range of possible character moments um, that I think that a lot of these skills the way I think of it is whatever ability is tied to the skill by default is the one that's most likely to be used, but that doesn't mean it's the only way it can be used. So for example, um, like let's go to that intimidation check. I know a lot of half-orc characters aren't going to have a very strong charisma. And most of the time intimidation might be a charisma or a, a tonal thing or some kind of presence, but there's more than one way to intimidate somebody. So showing that, uh, like maybe if you're say like a swashbuckler, you might do like a dexterity intimidation check and you get to go all Zorro on them and like slice so fast that, you know, like maybe like a part of their hat gets chopped off or something. Yeah. So there's, I love the idea also of players being free to feel like they can ask 
for things to be swapped around so that they can play to their strengths. Um, and also it allows for, again, a greater range of um, applications of these skills. So for example, one of the things in fifth edition that I think is like really limiting is medicine checks, that medicines are wisdom-based. And I've had this argument with a lot of different people. So I'm going to drudge it up here where a lot of times I'll talk to players and they'll be like, well, intelligence is book knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. And my counter argument is in the math of the game, it's not. Wisdom accounts for sensory input. That's pretty much what it's got. So perception checks, can I see, smell, hear something, you know, insight checks, am I in tuned with this person's body language? It's not, you're not applying the knowledge. Applied knowledge is still categorized under intelligence um, it, for the sake of how the dice roll in the categories of the game. So for a medicine check, it bothers me that there's no intelligence added to it where let's say somebody uh, gets like an artery severed in the middle of combat. You're not just going to be like, well, I feel like it's here. So you're okay. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like if you're an intelligence-based character that's trained in medicine, you should be able to use your medical knowledge to be able to help somebody else. And it's, it's even funnier because like uh, you can see this in older editions of the game where, you know, in fifth edition, nature is an intelligence skill. So whereas in fourth edition, intelligence was actually a wisdom skill. So the wisdom characters like rangers and druids had a naturally higher nature check <laughs> than say like a, a wizard would have a higher nature because they're more intelligent, but not as good, but their wisdom may not be as high. So it, it's just really interesting how you account for the math of the game so that the, the resolutions of die rules make sense narratively. Um, so I find that this is a very powerful one and I'm going to like tease out a future variant rule we're going to cover, but I, in my home game, love combining this one with passive abilities for automatic success. So if say I've got like uh, a wizard character that's had some first aid training and they have a medicine proficiency, if their passive intelligence medicine is like, say like a 15 or a 16, I'll allow them to automatically succeed on certain medicine checks. Um, whereas normally in a game, a DM may only allow it for your wisdom medicine as opposed to combining it with uh, other things. Yeah, and there's actually something else I wanna add here, which is um, slightly tangential to this kind of a rule, but it's basically uh, going under the umbrella that players can kind of make an argument that this works this way because my character is good at this, or this works this way because of the flavor of my character. And, and it'd be really cool, you know, for storytelling purposes, if I was able to succeed at this, uh, or rather if I was able to be proficient in this skill by using a different ability score and things like that. Um, this is, you're not gonna find this rule that I'm about to talk about in the PHB or the DMG or anything, but you can find it on our, uh, you know, a sibling podcast, I guess you could say, called Advantage, where they often uh, use the rule, uh, sell it to me. Now, this is a rule that you can do in combat um, where maybe the uh, player character does like one point of damage too little to actually knock the uh, BBEG down. 
And I think that's kind of funny because it, it, it is a little anticlimactic. It, you know, it, the, the, the evil person is like hanging on to life by this tiny, tiny thread. And if only you had, you know, plus one more damage to that uh, final strike, you would have had a really amazing finishing blow uh, or something like that. Instead of just like, oh, well, now we have to, you know, wait another round of combat to, to get to that for some reason. Or, and, you know, there are situations where it's, where it's appropriate that the uh, BBG escapes. Uh, or something like that. They like, you know, it's like, aha, I'm, I'm still just barely alive and I'm going to dimension door out of here, you know, and that's, that's fine. But sometimes it is the final battle and it kind of sucks when you just do like one tiny, tiny fraction of damage too little. So what this sell it to me rule is, is that uh, it rewards good role play or description for uh, an extra point of damage. And so, uh, you know, you do that one extra point if you can sell it to the DM that you have a inspirational character moment or something. And I think this is a good rule because it encourages players to role play more, even players who are a little shy or aren't really feeling too, too like skilled in role play. Uh, it, it'll encourage them to at least think a little bit more about what's going on. And, and, you know, this would be uh, subjective to the character, not the character, it would be subjective to the player's role play skill. So if I see that they're making an effort, it's not like I'm going to say, well, that wasn't good enough, you know, <laughs> something like that. So I, I like that rule. And I think a lot of a lot more people should use it because it rewards the players for their for their efforts for their creativity. Well, and one thing that I think is an overarching lesson of what you just brought up, Ian, is that I find that there are sometimes DMs that get frustrated that their players aren't being creative or don't seem like they're contributing to the narrative, that they're only following the rules of the book. And a big part of that is mechanically, what are you rewarding? So if a player tries something creative or narratively impactful, but mechanically you're restricting them, then it's there. there is a certain personality of player that they're like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the, the least optimized option, or it doesn't matter really what the, what, if it costs me an action or a bonus action to do this. Uh, I still think it's true to my character, but I do find that a majority of players I play with, if you aren't backing up your, narrative reinforcement with game mechanics, then a lot of times your players will do what's most in the mechanical interest of their character. So their character doesn't die so they can keep playing. So um, a lot of times there may even be like, I've seen the counter, a counter to this would be something like, you know, my player tries to ask the enemy uh, humanoid a question. Well, that is going to cost your action if you try that. So now it's like, all right, either I ask the question and have the risk of my character being hurt or dying, or I just kill them and reduce their hit points to zero as normal. So now you're not creating an interesting choice between two different outcomes. You are basically saying you have a good option and a bad option. And the so-called good option mechanically is less narratively interesting. So paying attention to um, what Jesse Shell would call operative actions and resultant actions 
um, can be a great way to spice up the storytelling at your table, which a lot, it's ironic because a lot of these DMs that I end up talking to or playing with, uh, they end up, they, they say they're story-minded, but they don't rule story-minded. So it's, it's one of those disconnects that can, ri- and, and once you figure out the connection and how to rule in a story-minded way, um, games that I've been a part of go from being good to great. They, they really uh, bridge the gap between, you know, this game is, this game is all right. To, this game is amazing. And I'm like 110% invested. Uh, so the variant of encumbrance on page 176, arguably a relatively controversial rule. Uh, I would say that some DMs uh, choose to ignore um, for the sake of other storytelling devices. Um, but I would argue is actually pretty interesting if you want to introduce uh, a slightly slightly more bookkeeping than you already have. Uh, so the variant rule of encumbrance. The rules for lifting and carrying are intentionally simple. Here's a variant rule. If you're looking for some more detailed rules uh, for determining uh, how a character is hindered by the weight of equipment. And when you use this variant, ignore the strength column of the armor table in the chapter five equipment. If you carry weight in excess of five times your strength score, you're considered encumbered, which means that your speed drops by 10 feet. If you carry weight in excess of 10 times your strength score up to the maximum carry capacity, you are instead heavily encumbered, which means that your speed drops by 20 feet and you have disadvantage on ability checks, attack rolls, and saving throws that use strength, dexterity, and constitution. Now, this is um, arguably more than we use when we employ encumbrance, I would say. Uh, in our games. Uh, I also think we tweak it a little bit so that uh, there's a lower threshold for maximum encumbrance, um, if I recall, for for your games, John. But um, either way, this is a pretty interesting rule if you want to consider the fact that they are that uh, each uh, every every 50 gold pieces weighs a pound uh, and swords, great swords, axes, armor, backpacks, all these things weigh something. How are they trekking across the country uh, with all these things in their bags? And you know, you could go like the anime protagonist route, but arguably that's the default. <laughs> and so, variant encumbrance actually presents an interesting conundrum, which is uh, which may result, in fact, in you taking a bunch of things out of your adventurer's pack or your explorer's pack or dungeoneer's pack because that weighs a lot. And you can also rely on. Uh, other party members to carry specific things, uh, which I think is actually pretty cool. And it presents an, it presents a moment where you can cooperate with your, your players uh, or with your fellow players to make sure we have all the equipment we need, even though not everyone has all that equipment in one spot on their backpack. Uh, for example, torches, pythons, hemp and rope. Uh, ball bearings, <laughs> things like that. Uh, so each person can carry one of those and it'll divide the weight up so that you guys don't have to worry about your encumbrance threshold. Um, of course, that changes when you have to consider what kind of loot you might be finding uh, in, uh, in the dungeons or the, the layers that you're exploring. All right, I have a lot to say on this one because this is actually, I know it, it is controversial. This is one of my favorite rules in the game 
And when I started implementing it, there were some very specific things that happened with my players that I thought made the game much more interesting. So first, uh, one thing I, I hadn't realized until reading it through again just now is that you ignore the strength column in the uh, the armor table, meaning chain mail, uh, ha- uh, plate mail, and splint mail don't have a strength prerequisite if you're using variant encumbrance. That's something I hadn't considered. Um, now, a lot of players like will think kind of what you said, Ian, where it's more bookkeeping. I disagree in that I think that there's more front-loaded bookkeeping, but in the long term, there's actually not as much bookkeeping. I've played in games that don't enforce encumbrance, and by the time we hit like level 10, level 12, like there are times players have an entire second sheet dedicated to just the amount of crap that they're carrying. So it's like, all right, well, I have a halberd, a shield, a short sword, a long sword, a great sword. And at what point you start asking yourself to bring it back to the, the um, realism versus fantasy um, and is where are they putting all of this? So <laughs> it kind of goes back to the equipment sizes too, a little bit where it's like, let's account for some volume. Um, Now, this also, like you said, uh, one of the things I started noticing in my games, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but what was happening was because they could just carry a bunch of stuff, there would be times where the party would come up against some kind of exploration obstacle. And they'd ask, do we have this random piece? Like, do we have like, um, like, uh, not a tire iron? Um, What am I thinking of? Uh, a crowbar crowbar oh my goodness i it really escaped me but they're like do we have just like a crowbar in our pack and rather than doing the the strict bookkeeping of you have 10 pythons and 10 torches and it was just like fine you have a crowbar that you magically remembered to take along and i started becoming very dissatisfied with that game that type of play because players didn't know what was in their equipment because they could have so much they actually couldn't bookkeep as well so when I started, when I started uh, enforcing variant encumbrance, we started learning a few things. First of all, an explorer's pack is 59 pounds if you do the math. Meaning if your character has, um, has a strength score of 10, which is average, and for a lot of characters is what they're doing, they can only with variant encumbrance carry 50 pounds, which means now you have to do what Ian said and go through your explorer's pack and pick what's important to carry and what's not. So because you have to be more choosy with what you're going to carry, players knew everything that was in their pack. And like you said, it actually encouraged team dynamics because now, first of all, the strength character has a job carrying stuff around. Second of all, they you had to communicate more with who was going to carry what at what time. And... Uh, the, the other thing is it started to increase the power of certain uh, races like Goliath and Orc, where it was like, now your carrying capacity is doubled. That started becoming a really huge benefit. Uh, the other thing I like doing is combining this variant rule with group patrons, which we're not going to get into here. That's, it's, that's a much more abstract thing than just like a variant rule. Um, but group pay uh what it let me do is rather than having gold be the restrictive game mechanic that determined how much a player could equip themselves with i would just say your group patron can give you anything you can carry 
Um, so do the math, figure out what you can carry. And that's, that's what you're going to use. So now you might have a player that's like, Oh, I can take plate mail right away. But then they see how much plate mail weighs. (laughs) And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, I can take plate mail and a dagger. And that's my character. (laughs) So all of a sudden it started really getting players to be immersed in what equipment they were carrying. And it made it a much more meaningful gameplay decision of figuring out what they weren't going to take as much as what they were on this topic. I do also enforce uh, ammunition. You got to keep track of your ammo and you can't carry more than say one case of ammo at a time. But yeah, I think that's all. Oh, the only other thing with, um, so with variant encumbrance, the other thing I added, I actually make players keep track of their gold weight. Uh, So they have to be careful about how much gold they keep on them at all times, because that adds to the the carry weight that they have to manage and carry around. But when I was starting to do a lot of the math, variant encumbrance in terms of realism just makes more sense. Like if you have an average amount of strength and you think about sword fighting or, you know, running around and like ducking under things or the stresses of combat and you have 50 pounds of equipment that you're carrying the entire time, it makes more sense than say regular encumbrance where you can have up to 150 pounds of equipment with a strength score of 10. So I do keep that uh, idea of a 15 times strength score measurement. That's your character's ability to max lift. So if they really needed to, they could lift up to 150 pounds for maybe a moment. But again, that's not like a regular thing. And if they try to lift any more, they may suffer damage. They may suffer exhaustion. There might be some kind of penalty, but that's how I rule variant encumbrance. Ian, I don't know if you have any comments on this one. Um, I I don't know if I have any comments per se, but it does change up a little bit once you start adding magic items. So this, uh, this kind of rule is going to have a lot more of an impact in a magic item, uh, low campaign where if you don't have a bag of holding or a handy haversack or something like that, then it's not going to, or if you don't have those, it's going to have much more of an impact than if you did. Uh, And that's why, uh, you know, we always talk about bag of holding being like this, like staple item of D&D and it is, but you know, if you're going to be using it, uh, if you, if you want to increase the value of items like that, that help with like carrying capacity and, you know, where you're keeping all that gold, um, then, uh, then this will become very useful as a rule for your table. So, uh, I, I definitely recommend it for that reason. Uh, if not just that reason alone, where it's like, you only get one, handy haversack for levels like one through 10 or something like that, then you're only going to have so much space to uh, work with. So you have to consider what you're carrying still until you get to higher levels. And I don't know, maybe you have like an artificer in the party and they say, yeah, I make a bag of holding finally, right? Like, yeah, now we can all, you know, we can carry all that loot. You know, we we just killed that dragon. We can just go and like open the bag and just like scoop up massive, massive amounts of gold and, you know, things like that. So I I think that's, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I like this rule a lot. Definitely recommend it. Um, so, uh, what was the next page? 192. Oh God, playing on a grid. All right, hold on. Let me, um, variant playing on a grid. 
If you play out a combat using a square grid and miniatures or other tokens, follow these rules. I like how it's not even like, it's not actually a variant. It's just follow the rules. God dang it. All right. <laughs> um, so squares, each square on the grid represents five feet and your speed, uh, rather than moving foot by foot, move square by square on the grid, which means that you use five feet of your movement in, uh, in each little segment there. And this is particularly easy if you translate your speed into squares by dividing the speed by five. For example, a speed of 30 feet translates into a speed of six squares. If you use a grid often, consider writing your speed in squares on the character sheet. Uh, now, entering a square. To enter a square, you must have at least one square of movement left, even if the square is diagonally adjacent to the square you're in. Uh, the rule for diagonal movement sacrifices realism for the sake of smooth play. However, you can check the Dungeon Master's Guide to, uh, to uh, have guidance on using a more real realistic approach, which I think it actually divides like your movement by like half for the first diagonal square that you go into, and then the rest is like 10 feet or something. So it's like going into geometry. Um, if a square costs extra movement, as a square of difficult terrain does, you might have enough movement left to pay by entering it. Uh, for example, you might have at least two squares of movement left to enter a square on, or you must, sorry, I said might, you must have at least two squares of movement left to enter a square of difficult terrain. Now, for corners, diagonal movement cannot cross the corner of a wall large tree or other terrain feature that fills its space. I kind of forgot about that one in my gameplay. Uh, and ranges uh, to determine the range on a grid between two things, whether creatures or objects, uh, start counting squares from a square adjacent to one of them and stop counting in the space of the one of the other one, in the space of the other one. So you count by the shortest route. Now that was a lot. Um, most people, tend to just kind of remember the part about five feet of movement is one square uh, and diagonal movement, unless you're playing a little bit harder, uh, is, is the same and it doesn't matter. Um, but the corner thing, like I said, I didn't remember that. So if there's like a tree, uh, like if there's like a tree or something that's, uh, that's right in front of me and I wanna do a corner around it, I can't do that. I have to walk, uh, perpendicularly uh, or parallel to that tree's space before I can actually get around it. Um, and the range thing, uh, I think a lot of people tend to get confused about how to count distance between things. Um, this basically does the way I do it, except I actually start from the first square space. So I start from the center of that square and go to the edge of the uh, target square, um, which gets the same effect, it's just in reverse. Um, but that, that can be really important, especially if you have like a, I don't know, a hundred foot line from a lightning bolt. And so you have to count how many squares there are. That's going to be like 20, uh, yeah, 20 squares. Um, is it going to reach? <laughs> I hope it does. Otherwise, you're going to have to move. And if you're out of movement, then you might be out of luck. Uh, so yeah, this is actually, I, I feel like this rule, it says it's a variant rule. But most people use this rule. Like, I don't actually know anyone. I know they're out there somewhere, these mystical creatures who use hexes instead of squares. Um, but 
uh, I actually don't know anyone personally who doesn't use the grid when it comes to combat. And I think that's just because geometrically speaking, uh, it's probably one of the easier ones to understand. But those who do use hexes often say that it is easier than using squares because it feels, I guess it like feels better once you understand how it actually works. And I don't understand how it works. So I'd use squares. Yeah. Um, so I've had some experience. The reason I noted this one down to talk about a little is first bringing to the attention that it is technically a variant rule, um, that the game is designed for theater of the mind. Um, meaning that you just kind of keep track of things through description. (laughs) Um, I have played in games that use hexes. I really don't like them as much. Um, and actually it's because Hexes, you can only move six ways. Squares, you can move eight because if you count the, the corners and everything too. So um, I, I know Adam tried to uh, DM a few games that used hexes um, as just an experiment to see, do we like hexes better? Um, and I, I just, I didn't like it as much. Um, I thought it was a little more confusing. You couldn't, there, there are times you couldn't just move straight. You had to like do this weird, unnatural kind of serpentine movement to get to where you wanted to go. So, uh, but the, oh, the other reason I wanted to bring it up is when we get to the DMG rules, there are some variant rules there that specifically call out uh, the grid as like alternate ways to use the grid. Like Ian was saying, there's a, there's a variant rule about how to travel through corners that, spoiler alert, I hate, I think it's stupid. Um, and I, I really, I also think it's unrealistic, which is ironic because it's supposed to be more realistic. My biggest point here, I've played a lot of d and I played d with Theater of the Mind. I played d with Grids. We just both played a session where we tried to do Theater of the Mind. Theater of the Mind, every single time it's been tried on a serious combat has always been more confusing and always has been less immersive, which is ironic because the idea is that if you have less interface of the game, that you should be more immersed in whatever descriptions are going on in your head. But because the, it, this is a structured game experience, not a freeform narrative, is it 25 feet? Is it 30? I can't remember. Um, is it at an angle? Is there something in my way? Oh, wait, where did that corner pop up? Like it, it becomes just much more of a hassle of communication than having a very clear visual to keep track of everything. So the most immersive combat I've ever participated in, either running a game or being a player, there's always been a grid involved. Um, not even like just a drawing, a grid with five foot squares where you can easily keep track of everything moving on, what everyone's positions are. It makes combat go smoother. I'm very opinionated on this. Because the the only time I use theater of the mind or I've seen theater of the mind be successfully implemented is on small encounters that don't matter. So for example, it's like, let's rough up this shopkeep or, you know, this shopkeep is uh, our bounty and he's trying to run away. You know, we're, it doesn't make sense to pop out a grid to move everything, (laughs) to completely redraw the grid turn by turn to show the chase happening, you know? But uh, for for something like that, theater of the mind makes more sense because you're not in a static location. Um, But also there's not a whole lot of complicated stuff going on. 
there's, it tends to be, there's like a single objective, single target, and it's kind of up to die rules or minor choices. That's where I see it be implemented the most successfully. What becomes possible when you let go of your preconceived notions on what makes a great story? What becomes possible when we see tabletop role-playing as more than just a game and also as a vehicle for personal growth and development? What becomes possible when you let your characters live through your gameplay? This is the DM Shower Thoughts Podcast, a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network, available on iTunes and Spotify. All right, so we're back from break, and now we're going to be looking at the variant and optional rules that are present in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So take it away, Ian. So, yeah, uh, Renown is an optional rule that you can use to track an adventurer's standing within a particular faction or organization. Renown is a numerical value that starts at zero, then increases as a character earns favor and reputation within a particular organization. You can tie benefits to a character's renown, including ranks and titles within the organization and access to resources. A player tracks renown separately for each organization his or her character is a member of. For example, an adventurer might have five renown within one faction and 20 renown within another based on the character's interaction with each organization over the course of a campaign. Uh, renown is... Um is the first of these, uh, this clump of little optional rules that I've dubbed measuring relationships. So uh, we'll talk about that with loyalty too uh, coming up next. But what I find really interesting about Renown is that you can see how fifth edition is dancing with the groundwork that'll eventually become group patrons, which was something that was formally introduced in Eberron, but then reinforced and um, kind of made generic in Tasha's cauldron of everything. Um, I am not sure, like, like experience points that I would need to track renown in my game. I would think that like, I would just kind of, kind of eyeball it and be like, ah, you've earned this rank in this organization. But I do like that it's already getting the DM thinking about how the player relates to larger interests and factions that are operating in the world and how they may be able to steer the ship, so to speak, one way or another. Yes, absolutely. I think that tracking renown does have its uses though. Uh, for example, if you're a type of DM that finds it difficult to keep track of a lot of your characters' interactions and relationships with different NPCs and factions, this could be useful uh, to, to make sure that you're rewarding them properly for the investment that they've made in the relationships with these people. Um, honestly, uh, you know, like with a lot of these rules, I find that renown seems like it would be good in theory, but I would probably need to get used to it. And I would also probably find it more useful. Um, I don't know, it, it, at the table, I guess, as opposed to like online. Um, for some reason, it just, it feels like it would fit better if I had like note cards, like spread out behind my DM, DM screen, even though, even though the VTT is basically the same thing, I, I just, I feel like it would be easier somehow because I don't actually have a lot of room at my desk at the computer. 
but if I was like in person, then there's a lot more room at the table. And, and I just think that it would work better for me. But um, yeah, this is one of those rules that like in theory, I'm just like, yeah, that's a good idea. But like, you know, a lot of rules are like that for me. And I, I think it's because uh, they just like start inspiring me, like make me feel like more creative when I'm going to be a DM. Uh, so, you know, it, it could work. But using, for example, using this rule in combination with like all the other variant rules or something like that, like it would probably just feel overwhelming after a while. So, which is why, you know, why we're looking at it. So, you know, I recommend that if you're going to use this, you should consider what other variant rules you're using because the, it can become a lot to keep track of. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned this um, with, say, uh, equipment sizes, I think. Um, where a lot of these rules are kind of tributes or tips to the hat of D&D's legacy as a crunchier game. You know, this is like the, the granddaddy of RPGs in general, but you have players that are used to D&D's legacy where a lot of these things were calculated and tracked and measured as opposed to this, <laughs> this floofy new generation of, ah, we just want to tell good stories and everything. So I do think that um, for some players being able to say, you know, you gain like three renown points because you completed this mission for this organization um, can be a really engaging reward for them um, that really gives them a sense of progress as opposed to keeping it vague or abstract like, oh, well, they kind of like you. Um, and that's one of the benefits of this game. It's, it's good to have that concrete measurement. Um, also, uh, we didn't read through it, but one of the sections in the renowned part of the DMG is on piety. And it's interesting how little rules like renown can get lost in the greater scheme of the game, but, uh, lost, Od uh, lost odysseys, mythic odysseys, uh, mythic odysseys of, uh, Theros has this huge section that really dives into piety and how it's such a major like background magic mechanic of how that world operates and your relationship with the different deities of Theros and how that shapes this specific style of Greek epic storytelling. So it's such a little section in the Dungeon Master's Guide, but for a Dungeon Master that is looking for inspiration, this little blurb can become an entire campaign world or an entire campaign experience where you know players are are really upgrading their piety and getting additional supernatural divine gifts um so it's just it's really cool i think that even though i don't see myself using this one at the table it's one to keep in mind because you know even if you don't track renown um cultivating renown might be a major motivator for your players yeah, and I think this also sets the pattern almost for, for the DMG as a book. Uh, there have been a lot of people that I've seen on like Reddit or on Facebook or something. They talk about how like, oh, the DMG, like it has a lot of cool rules. It has a lot of cool ideas, but it's not like a concrete like how to DM in fifth edition uh, guide, which is ironic because it's called the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, so, it, you know, for people who are looking for that, you know, 
fourth edition, I think, and, and even 3.5 had like some really much more concrete ideas. Like this is how you should, you know, work with this kind of a player. And this is how you should set up your, your map, but like, this is a lot more loose and, and that's okay because fifth edition is looser than a lot of the other editions previously. So uh, when we're going through these rules, just keep that in mind that um, if it feels like some of these are like good ideas, but like, you know, I don't know if I want to actually have to keep track of like renowned points or whatever, you know, it, it seems, it seems like it's more of like an inspirational kind of thing, then uh, that's pretty much just the tone of the DMG. <laughs> uh, so it's not like, this is how you do it. And you'll be success. Success will be you. And it's like, nah, uh, this is like, just, a it's almost like, um, it's almost like a collective, um, you know, uh, like just like a horde of the collective experiences of the people who created D Dungeons and Dragons and have played it for uh, so many years and such, rather than uh, rather than trying to set out uh, good like strict guidelines um, that are like tried and true. It's like no, you could try this or you could try this, that kind of thing. Yeah, and just to comment like further our comments on just the Dungeon Master's Guide as and in, in, as a whole. This is a text that's designed to be debated. It's not something where, like the player's handbook establishes the concrete rules of fifth edition system. This is how an action works. These are the rules to a bonus action. So to play the game, all you really need is the player's handbook. But to tune your game, the Dungeon Master's Guide is really helpful in asking deeper purpose-based questions that really help you customize the experience so that it's more meaningful. It's one thing to know the, the rule book. It's another to find meaning in the experience of play. So, and I, I really, the Dungeon Master's Guide is an interesting one because I come back to it every now and again. Um, and there are some really, it's, it's always fascinating how I look at the different ideas depending on where I'm at in my DM journey. So uh, the next one of these like measuring relationships is loyalty on page 93. Loyalty is an optional rule that you can use to determine how far an NPC party member will go to protect or assist the other members of the party, even those he or she doesn't particularly like. An NPC party member who is abused or ignored is likely to abandon or betray the party, whereas an NPC who owes a life debt to the characters or shares their goals might fight to the death for them. Loyalty can be role-played or represented by this rule. And this involves a loyalty score, which is another numerical value uh, ranging from zero to 20. Uh, and the maximum loyalty score of an NPC is equal to the highest charisma score among all the adventurers in the party. Uh, and the starting loyalty score is half that number, which is pretty interesting. Um, that That's a... Uh, well, then again, no, this is this is for party member NPCs, not just like any NPC you meet, um, just to be clear. And then you can track loyalty. Um, it, it does recommend you track loyalty in secret uh, because I guess it makes for more tension, uh, emotional, emotional tension. Uh, and also the score increases by 1d4 if other party members help the NPC achieve a goal tied to its bond to them. 
uh, and likewise it decreases, no, likewise an NPC score, NPC score increases by a D 1d4 if the NPC is treated particularly well uh, or is rescued by another party member and an NPC's loyalty score can never be raised above its maximum. Uh, and then it reduces by 1d4 kind of in the same way. And then if they're abused, misled, or endangered, then it, incre then it decreases by 2d4. Uh, so negativity is uh, more powerful than positivity in this case, in terms of uh, affecting the loyalty score. Well, it's kind of like that's a just general both life and <laughs> D and D mechanical thing, isn't it? Like damage and healing is not equal in fifth edition, so it's a lot easier to damage and destroy something than it is to try to heal it. Um, hence, you can't have a healing cantrip, right? Healing also always has to cost something. And it's nowhere near as powerful as something damaging of the same level. Um, but yeah, loyalty, um, I, it's, it's another one of these, how do we concretely measure relationships? Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. To me, it does feel a little video gamey though. Like, you know, you can increase the friendship stat of your companions in games like, uh, like Fallout or maybe even Skyrim. I'm, I haven't played enough Skyrim to know. But the idea being that your players know if you're using loyalty, I would say you track loyalty secretively, but you can also mention I am tracking loyalty. And sometimes it gets players to pay attention differently. Um, now we're used to playing with respectful and understanding adult players, but I can see if you're trying to teach uh, children or teens about D&D, you know, they are more likely to do completely asinine things because they're more excited about the freedom that they suddenly have than about creating meaningful gameplay, which is okay. That's where they're at developmentally. But if you mention that as a game mechanic, I'm tracking this NPC's loyalty, and this is something that you can decrease, it gives them a much more um, concrete feeling to go off of that then they can make a, make a gameplay decision, you know, hey, I actually get a gameplay benefit if I treat this person nicely. And in general, in my experience, I found that the world kind of works the same way. <laughs> if you're nice to people, it's more likely they'll help you than if you're mean to everybody. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is another interesting version of like renown, uh, to be honest, loyalty, even though they denote different qualities, I, um, it, it definitely falls, falls in pretty much the same vein as renown in terms of the numerical values. Uh, and therefore, whether or not I would choose to use this, uh, it does depend on the party, like John was saying. Um, I, I think if, if you have players who are more interested in that kind of like statistical bookkeeping approach even though this is like a secrety kind of thing you can at least present it to them and say this is something that we'll be using because i want to uh encourage en encourage more meaningful uh you know npc relationships because you guys interact with npcs all right but there's never like an npc in the party but this campaign i'm thinking that maybe we'll have some npcs in the party because uh i don't know maybe the party's unbalanced or something like that um and they'll get tpk'd by a mind player so you need to have somebody in the party, <laughs> some wizard in the party or something like that so um you know that that might be a good reason to uh start incorporating something like this 
Uh, other than that, I, I don't think there's too much else to say. It's it's very uh, it's a very similar flavor. So uh, moving on, um, we have a section on page one thirty six about identifying magic items. Go ahead, take it away, Ian. Uh, variant more difficult identification. If you prefer magic items to have more of a greater mystique, uh, consider removing the ability to identify the properties of a magic item during a short rest and require the identify spell, experimentation, or both to reveal what the magic item does, which I think is interesting because this is actually a variant rule that uh, I didn't know this was a variant rule. I, just like so many people require that you have identify or something that you can't you, you like you just don't ever learn what your magic items do until you like bring them back to town or something. But I didn't know that in the raw, you can just identify it per uh, short rest or something, which I think is interesting because it also means that, um, you know, a lot of those cursed items and stuff, uh, they, uh, you know, some DMs, they like to, to they like to be uh you know, shenaniganizers. So they'll, uh, they'll give you like a cursed item and they're like, haha, they're going to have to put it on or like whatever, like, you know, it'd be pretty boring if they didn't put it on right away. And they uh, presumably their players feel the same. So they just put it on in a tune without knowing what it is. And uh, they figure it out that way. But this, uh, this variant rule uh, is just one of those rules that like so many people use that I think it, it, it's like, um, it's like critical successes on ability scores. That's not technically a variant rule in, in 5e either. It's only for uh, combat, but everybody uses it because it's just a lot more fun that way. And I think that's, I, I think that's pretty cool. This is definitely a, a rule that I, I can say that I uh, tend to enforce a lot. Yeah, I'm actually with you on this one, um, mostly because it increases the value of the identify spell. Um, a lot of times... It's, it's so interesting when the game gives you certain tools, but also within its own system, those tools, there's a much more efficient version of it, you know? Um, so now it begs the question, like, why would I use such and such a tool if it's less efficient than just taking a short rest, you know? So I think identify, um, you know, keeping it as like, the thing you use if you want to know what your magic item does versus just experimenting with it, that's a different risk reward than take a short rest and heal anyway. So uh, I do really like enforcing a rule like this um, just because it gets your players to really consider their options rather than just picking the same spells over and over again because they know that they're going to be used. Um, you get you get a little bit of play with, you know, maybe I want identify on hand just in case we come across something magical we don't know about. So now we're getting into a section on running the game. Um, so these are rules that can help kind of smooth everything out. So actually, this is one of my my favorite rules that I mentioned uh, earlier with when we were talking about passive scores, but this is on automatic success. So this section is part of running the game, which these are specific rules that can either make the gameplay more clear. Uh, there are a little bit of some, some options involved here, 
but really the idea is this this is to smooth out or clarify different parts of what already exists in the game yeah so automatic successes uh sometimes the randomness of a d20 roll uh leads to ludicrous ludicrous results let's say a door requires a successful dc 15 strength check to be battered down a fighter with a strength of 20 might helplessly flail against the door because of a bad die roll. Meanwhile, the rogue with a strength of 10 rolls a 20 and knocks the door from its hinges. If such results bother you, consider allowing automatic success on certain checks. Under this optional rule, a character automatically succeeds on any ability check with a DC less than or equal to the relevant ability score minus 5. So in the example above, the fighter would automatically kick in the door. This rule doesn't apply to contests, saving throws, or attack rolls. And having proficiency with a skill or a tool can also grant automatic success. If a character's proficiency bonus applies to his or her ability check, the character automatically succeeds if the DC is 10 or less. If that character is 11th level or higher, the check succeeds if the DC is 15th level or less, which is, I, I think that's pretty good. Uh, the downside to this whole approach is predictability. So once, uh, an ability, once a character's an ability score uh, reaches 20, DC checks of 15 and lower using that ability become automatic successes. Smart parties will then always match their characters uh, with the highest ability score against any given check. Uh, if you want some risk of failure, you need to set higher DCs. Doing this, though, can aggravate the problem you're trying to solve. And higher DCs require higher die rolls and thus rely even more on luck. Automatic success is such an interesting rule because to me, it actually makes player decision-making more meaningful in that what things do I want my character to be good at? Something that really... It, it aggravated me at the beginning, but it bothered me more and more as a player in, in fifth edition was when my player would be designed something and a DM would call for an unnecessary role and my player would be bad at the thing they're supposed to be good at. So it's like, you know, I've got say like a plus eight arcana, but it's like, oh, I wonder what this sigil on the ground means. It's like roll an arcana check. And I got like a two and it's like, no, you it's too complex of a rune. And then the barbarian with like a minus two intelligence would stroll on in and they make an arcana check and they get a nat 20 and they're like, oh, obviously what this rune means. And story-wise, it would make like such little sense to who was succeeding the rules because it was inherently random because they were calling for checks. So I, one thing it's, it's so interesting how different players respond to this, but in my latest campaign, I've really leaned on automatic successes for the player character that makes the most sense to understand or do certain things to do those things. So is it kicking open a door? It makes more sense for the party barbarian with a strength modifier of plus four to be able to do that. than say, you know, the lanky sorcerer with a minus one strength modifier. So if I let the barbarian automatically do it, it makes more sense in the context of the story. And also it really allows me to prune the unnecessary checks that would really only add confusion or frustration. Now it is really funny though, because like last night's game that we played, 
there, I had two players that were like, I just want to roll the dice. I just want to roll my dice. And to me, what that translated to is I just want a chance to fail because I was allowing them to automatically succeed at what their characters were built for. So they're, they're like, I want to just make a history check when as a dungeon master, my rationale is this is not esoteric history. This is history that your character has been trained in that, and you took specific skills that allow them to be trained in that thing. So of course they would understand the stonework of the dwarves that you're looking at because you're a dwarf with stone cunning. So there's no need to make a role because as a, as a dwarf with a backstory that enforces this moment, you're going to be able to see it. So automatic successes are really funny because sometimes the people that have a problem with it are actually the players that are invested in the gambling aspect of checks. As a storytelling DM though, I really love automatic successes, especially when used in combination with uh, passive scores. So I just, I, I really think that if say you've got a passive score, that's way out of like way out there. So let's say like, it's like you're a barbarian with an athletics of like plus 13, of course, you're going to be able to lift a small package, <laughs> you know? And, and I think really it's what automatic successes help train DMS to do is figure out what's it begs the question what's worth rolling for and what's not yeah you pretty much hit the nail on the head uh everything that you said was pretty much how i felt um it, it, it i definitely think that having automatic successes can be useful uh in in furthering the storytelling that you're you're doing in that like we're not bogged down by unnecessary roles, which uh, as we all know, unnecessary roles lead to more likely outcomes of fudging the dice uh, because you feel like they should be able to do this, but you feel like you want to give them the chance to roll and, and it becomes like a little bit of a internal turmoil on that. Like, I know we've both felt that way when it comes to um, some of our checks, we're just like, we're just like, yeah, okay, go roll a history check. But like uh, secretly, I really want you to know this. Well, if I want you to know this, then why don't I just let you succeed on the check? Uh, assuming you ask me, like, uh, because you are, you know, trained in this, I feel like you should know this, but I want to give you the chance to roll anyway. But that's the thing is that passive scores, or rather passive, passive uh, successes uh, often have like this floor. So if it's reasonable that the floor already meets what we need you to meet in order to succeed, then we might as well tell you. Now, when it comes to these passive scores, like passive wisdom, perception, that kind of thing, um, I've been I've been going back and forth a little bit. I'm trying to figure out when it's when is a good time to treat that passive as as the base like score that you can get. And when it's time to give somebody an active check. So like if you're moving through a dungeon and you are, you know, actively looking around, doesn't that mean you should have the players roll to see what they see? Or is their passive perception score high enough to the point where you just say what they see anyway? Like, cause uh, like think about like stealth versus perception checks, right? Um, the way it works is that the stealthing creature actively makes a stealth check. 
and that is compared to the passive perception check of the other creature, assuming they're not on their guard. So where else does this rule apply is, is where I get like stuck on, you know? So I think this uh, variant rule kind of outlines it a little bit better uh, and it makes it a little bit more clear as to when it might be appropriate to have an automatic success based on passive scores. Um, but I, I too enjoy gambling and rolling the dice. So it, it's, it's tricky to figure that out. Yeah. And actually what you said reminded me um, of one of the core points of this whole thing, which is uh, WebDM recently released a video on fudging dice rolls. And when I, this isn't the first video that they've talked about this topic, but it was a great reminder to why I fell in love with this variant rule to begin with. So a lot of players view the core gameplay, the core interactivity of a TTRPG as the dungeon master says something, I say what I'm going to do, and I roll the dice, and then I see what happens, right? And that can be true, but to me, that is when we don't know what's going to happen. And what can happen is, like we've been talking about with unnecessary dice rolls, if the check is to determine whether or not the players get a clue that allow them to continue, well, now a lot of times they're going to fail that and they're going to either get stuck or feel like their questions don't matter. Whereas instead, what I see the core storytelling gameplay being of, of TTRPGs and how I've been running my game and I've been feeling my games are way more successful because of this. It's about the me as the DM describing something my players listening to it and then either having a meaningful question or a meaningful response. And then I just respond with how that happens. And even if they choose an action that would traditionally call for a check by using passive or not passive uh, automatic successes, um, they get to really see how their choices matter. So it's not their choice is up to randomness. It's that their choice has a, a consequence in the game world, whether it's positive or negative. So rather than asking a question and then rolling a dice to see if they get any response, it's more about how do the player's choices impact what happens in the game. And those choices are made more meaningful if it's not up to a die roll. If it's just, you know, I open this door and see what's inside. Not I open door number one and is this the random room that <laughs> I've been looking for or do I lose, take some damage and try again? So, and that's one of the main things about the, the gameplay loop is it can really get boring if there is one correct answer, but you're randomly seeing if you're going to get the correct answer. Instead, I, I really like when dice are used to determine, say, degree of success. Um, but again, it has to be used appropriately. So all in all, um, I, I really like the web DM philosophy that TTRPGs are supposed to be about give and take as opposed to trying to argue with the DM about getting the maximum possible modifier, but then still leaving it up to randomness and potentially even losing out on meaningfulness of that decision because of that. So we're, so we're moving on over to uh, page 241 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, for the variant rule regarding inspiration. Uh, now, 
this uh this variant rule regards um having only players uh rewarding ins or awarding rather inspiration as a dm you do have a lot to keep track of sometimes you can lose track of inspiration and forget and forget to award it this happens to be a lot and it's usually why i say at the beginning of each session hey everyone starts with a point of inspiration then don't bother me. Uh, and so, so, some, so sometimes you lose track of it. And as a variant rule, you can actually allow your players to handle awarding inspiration entirely. During each uh, session, every, uh, each player can award inspiration to another player. A player follows whatever guidelines the group has agreed upon for awarding this inspiration. This can make your life easier and also give the players to recognize each other uh, for good play. You still need to make sure that the inspiration is being awarded fairly, however. Uh, and this approach works best with groups that are focused on the story. Oh, story-based story gameplay, eh? It's, uh, it's, we, we do that. Um, <laughs> it falls kind of flat if the players merely manipulate it to gain advantage in key situations without earning inspiration by way of good role-playing or whatever other criteria the group has established. In this variant, you can allow each player to award inspiration more than once per session. If you do so, the first time the player rewards, uh, I keep saying rewards instead of awards, whoops, uh, <laughs> awards inspiration in a session is free. Whenever that player awards it later in the same session, you gain inspiration that you can spend to give advantage to any foe of the player characters. There's no limit to the number of inspirations you can gain in this way, and unspent inspiration carries over from one session to the next, which I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know who wrote this rule, but I feel like this is a very personal rule that somebody hit brought up in like a meeting and was like, you know, I do this in my games because I like the idea of uh, players awarding inspiration, but sometimes they're just like jerks. So I get inspiration also for my monsters. Like, so, you know, you better, you better watch out kind of thing. And, and, you know, what I mean to say is that it, it feels like this might've been written uh, by a DM who has experienced antagonism uh, and may feel that there needs to be a counterbalance officially printed uh, in order for this to be recognized as a viable rule. Uh, and I, th I think that's fine. You know, it's not a terrible counterbalance or anything. I do think that if you have a, a group of players that you really trust and uh, they're really focused on the storytelling, then uh, it's very unlikely you would need to employ such a counterbalance, um, but it's there if you need it. So um, as much praise as I just sang for automatic successes, I have just as much contempt for this rule in particular. Um, I love inspiration being used essentially as a reroll. Um, I know that the actual rules as written is that inspiration should be used to gain advantage on an attack roll, saving throw, or ability check. And you have to declare that you're using inspiration before you make the roll. Um, I, I found that the most satisfying from the player and DM way that I've seen it ruled and ruled it and everything is that basically once a session, if a player 
roll something and it's just a bad roll or it's gonna kill their character or something just being like can i use my inspiration to re-roll it um i think that it's it's fine um the other thing and we've talked about this on dm shower thoughts uh this really starts to get into extrinsic versus intrinsic rewards and when i found inspiration being awarded to players from the dm for good role playing it was such a even as the dm doing it and i i recognize it in myself it was all based on personal taste of what do i consider good role playing and another player a lot of times you know you could use it as a way to try to bring players out of their shell if they're nervous about role playing or they're embarrassed to speak in a voice if they try something new you can give them inspiration and everyone can cheer for them but also, shouldn't you award that to players that already like role-playing? It's just such a subjective rule with such a concrete impact on the game state that I'm not sure it's appropriate for the types of games I'm interested in, at least. And players awarding each other inspiration, the way I could see it being used is, let's say you run a session, and at the end of the session all of the the players are allowed to give one point of inspiration to who they thought was like the MVP of the session or something. So if there was a particularly clever play or uh, an inspired RP moment or something like that, as a group, they can vote on one person, right? Um, And it might even be like a rotating thing so that it's not, you're not always awarding it to the same person. So like, let's say for like one session, you, you have four players, player one gets to award players two, three, and four, one of them inspiration for a moment that they liked. And they even get to like highlight it. Right. Then the next session it's player two's turn to award inspiration as someone. My other problem with it though, is it can really start to um, encourage favorite favoritism. And that's something I really don't like either. It just, I I've seen it been used and every time it gives me personally an icky feeling this is a super personal thing i'm not sure if every table is going to have a a dynamic like that but especially as a dm adjudicating one of the things i love promoting is fairness and not necessarily perfect balance but just the idea that I'm not going to give one player better equipment than another. I'm not going to allow one player to start at a higher level than others. I may award bonus equipment or items, but they're not more powerful. They're more meaningful. So it it might not be like a better bonus, but it might have an extra effect or a storytelling, storytelling symbolism to a specific player character that's really going to make the game more impactful for them. So, and that's why this, this kind of rule, I could see it maybe for say like 12 to 13 year olds, somewhere in that age range, again, kind of like measuring um, the relationships, like those kind of rules. But I, I just, I really don't like concretely awarding players for something that is fundamentally subjective. Yeah, actually, this kind of reminds me of um, I've been I've been listening to a lot of D and D horror stories lately. Now, uh, not to say that role playing. I mean, there are role playing horror stories, but what I mean to say is that the reason it relates to this is that I've seen a lot of horror stories where they 
they say something innocuous like, oh, I'm in trying to encourage my players to role play or I, I'm a player and I'm, we're trying to encourage the new guy to role play or, or the new girl to role play and that kind of thing. And, and that's pretty innocuous. But the level of role play everyone is comfortable with will vary. Like you said, it is very subjective. And the tricky thing about awarding something, it's almost like saying, it's almost like a monetary award, right? You know, uh, uh, you know, giving them something concrete, like experience points, or inspiration or something for good role play seems good in the moment, but it can create competitive attitudes. Uh, and, and not necessarily that it always will. And if it works at your table, that's why this is a variant rule. If it works at your table, then then you're fine. You know, you just do what you normally do and everybody is having a good time. And that's the important thing. But you should recognize that certain rulings like this or certain ways to play the game like this um, will not always fit every table. So I can see scenarios where we have a new player coming in and they have a little bit of experience role playing, but they're not really that comfortable um, you know, going all out and, and really stepping into the shoes of their character, even though that's what this game is about, it might not be what they're looking for out of the game. They might be looking for, they might be more of a, uh, a player who is interested in experiencing the story through the eyes of their character, but not so much that they are impacting, uh, like great, uh, moments in the story, great plot points. You know, uh, they might not be as interested in making, you know, super meaningful, emotionally complex decisions on behalf of their character and which may affect the party or uh, the game or the plot. And so, you know, you have to you have to take it, you know, one step at a time and recognize how far somebody is willing to go because not everyone is going to be on the same level of method acting that some players tend to be. So that, that's how I look at it. Um, I think this is a cool rule. And if it works for you guys, that's great. But I don't think it's as applicable across the board as some other rules, like the identify spell being the only way to identify a magic item. You know, I think that's, I think that's uh, just the case with this rule. Yeah, and actually uh, what you just said reminded me of something because especially this episode, I've been really repetitive about my interest in meaningful gameplay and i do want to distinguish between the definitions of meaningful gameplay and serious gameplay because i think that i've also been at tables where it's really method acting like you said and it's really you know tragic emotional real heavy role play and to me it was not meaningful it's like, I see what you're trying to do with your character. I see what the DM's trying to do with the story, but honestly, I could kind of care less right now. Um, and on the flip side, I've also had games that are really silly and humorous and wacky. And to me, those are some of my favorite gaming moments. And I think that one of the things that you just identified that I love is getting on the same page with what level of role play you want to be at. Um, so when I started my latest campaign, one of the things that I said is this, this is going to be pretty serious. Like only come on board if you're okay with the serious role-playing stuff. Um, and we found a lot of meaning through that. And it's actually funny. Like, uh, we joke about it, but some of my early NPCs were kind of joke characters and it ruined the experience 
not ruined, but like momentarily like sullied the experience for some of my players that were excited to finally play something serious. And they're like, you know, you have this, one of the feedbacks I got was, you know, you have this wonderfully complex world with intricate, you know, like political dynamics. And yet Winnie the Pooh is standing and watching us like, why? <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, come on. This was, I was so into the seriousness of this. And all of a sudden you have a cowboy named he and a ninja cat named Yeehaw <laughs> pop out to rob the train. Like, and it's just, it was, it was funny because I realized it's like, oh, that's just an artifact of the DMI was peeking its head out. So, um, I'm not saying you can't find meaningfulness in sillier games because you absolutely can't. It's just, again, my measuring tool for the impact of a game is meaningfulness, not necessarily how funny it was or how serious it was. Seriousness and, and humor are levels that you play with to dial into what's most meaningful for your players at the moment. Yeah, I, I just thank you for you know inspiring that ironically because it's inspiration i do i do feel like our dynamic uh tends to turn into like i i rely on you for like really good like concrete explanations of like rules or or you know concepts in in game design and stuff and then i'm there and i just point something out and then you're just like you know what you're right <laughs> or something like that and I, like i'm a sounding board kind of thing and I, I like that i like that because i don't think i have as firm of a grasp on on certain things about the game uh as you do but that i i do also think that has to do with how you approached the game initially you like didn't you like almost read all of the core three core rule books or something like that? oh yes i got most of the way through the spell section um but anyway uh cool so we yeah. can move on to our next optional rule which goes back to the battle grid with flanking yes i think this one will be pretty quick um, but here, here's how it works generally if you're using a board. If you regularly use miniatures, uh, flanking gives combatants a simple way to gain advantage on an attack roll against a common enemy. A creature can't flank an enemy they can't see, so you know you can't flank someone who's invisible uh, and cancel out unseen, unseen attacker. Uh, a creature also can't flank while incapacitated. So you, no, no flanking with your, your buddy's corpse. Uh, a large or larger creature is flanking as long as it is at least one square or hex of its space qualifies for the flanking, which is, I think that's important. You know, some people get confused on that. It's like, am I really flanking with this? Uh, that kind of thing. And they have some really nice diagrams here. Um, there's three diagrams for, uh, flanking on a grid, uh, not flanking on a grid, flanking on squares. I say grid cause we only use squares, uh, and flanking on a hex grid, uh, which I don't know how they work and I'm not sure what the advantages of using either. So, uh, here's how it goes. When a creature on squares uh, and at least one of its allies are adjacent to an enemy on opposite sides or corners of the enemy space, they, they are flanking that enemy and each of them has advantage on melee attack rolls against that enemy. When in doubt, you can draw a straight line between the two attacking creatures and their target. And if it intersects with the uh, uh, target's space, 
than they are flanking. Uh, and it has to uh, pass through opposite sides or corners of the enemy's space. So like it, it, there's a very specific way to do it. Um, but if you look at the diagrams, it, it's pretty clear. This is on page 251 of the uh, D Dungeon Master's Guide. And you can look this up on Google too. Now for flanking on hexes, when a creature and at least one of its allies are adjacent to an enemy and on opposite sides of the enemy's space, they flank that enemy. And each of them has advantage on their attack rolls, which is actually interesting. It just says attack rolls here. It doesn't say melee attack rolls. That, I wonder if that's correct. Uh, on hexes, count around the enemy from one creature to its ally against a medium or smaller creature. The allies flank if there are two hexes between them against a large creature. They flank if there are four hexes. And against a huge creature, they flank if there are five hexes. And then it continues upwards to Gargantian, which has six hexes. This is interesting. Wait, Actually, uh, if that is in... Not say... I'm sorry? Wait, which part? It, it did... Yeah, uh, sorry. Um, so what I said was that the uh, flanking on squares has advantage on melee attack rolls, but flanking on hexes, it doesn't say melee. And so I'm wondering if that's intentional or not, because uh, this has probably been asked before on like a sage advice or something, but uh, it's interesting to me because this implies if it doesn't say melee, it implies that you can get advantage on ranged attack rolls as well, uh, which Normally, you have disadvantage when you're within five feet of an enemy, uh, but if you have advantage from flanking, then it's just a straight roll, uh, which is interesting to me because that's just not how we usually see it. So I don't know, John, do you did you find a sage advice about this? No, I don't have a good answer. There's no sage advice I found uh, with a quick Google search. There was a D&D &D Beyond forum that explained like this seems like a typo. And that seems to be the consensus is they just forgot a word. Um, usually this would also show up in errata. Um, I don't have time to like filter through the whole errata document for the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, I do think that it's kind of an oversight. Um, I, I don't think this was intentionally like if you play on hexes, range attacks are cool. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, Hexes are an interesting thing, um, and we'll we'll bring them up probably again when it comes to flanking. Um, tangentially, I'm re I'm designing a custom system right now for a um, a, a real robot mecha anime TTRPG that I want to play with just some friends. I, I'm not planning on doing anything with it really, but part of that game's design is that you're on hexes and your facing matters. So if you're attacking an enemy unit from behind, you have uh, additional modifiers that you can add. It's easier to hit them versus trying to hit them from the front. So hexes are really useful if you're using facing rules. Um, but I think for D&D &D combat in particular, I don't really like hexes. I've played D&D &D on hexes before. It's aight. <laughs> I definitely prefer a square grid um, just for that specific thing, because you're also, you're not using movement to rotate and stuff. And there's a different feel to controlling a human sized organic character and controlling a giant size mechanical vehicle character.
Yeah, for sure. And with this flanking rule, uh, this is interesting because a lot of this is like the identify spell. A lot of people just straight up use this because they view it as integral in ways to combat in the game. Um, I think that there are reasons not to use it. Uh, advantage definitely adds a lot of uh, statistics. Basically, it increases your percentage to hit by a lot. So um, I think if it, I, I, there was some stat out there, I'm probably going to butcher the quote on this, but basically it was like, um, if the DC, if the AC is 10 and you get advantage on that with no modifiers, uh, then your chance to get it goes up from 50% to like 65 or 70% or something like that, because you're rolling twice and that's how the math works out. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not a statistician, but basically Flanking can be really detrimental to uh, the target character. And as a DM, if you have, if you're, if you're so inclined to be protective uh, against your, your uh, foes, the ones that you're using uh, against the uh, player characters, then flanking can seem like a death sentence because uh, they, especially if you employ um, <laughs> the blender effect, as it were, uh, where if a creature is flanked, it just automatically is flanked by any other creature that happens to join into the fray uh, in melee. Um, so if they're like surrounded by four creatures, then, uh, you know, it, <laughs> so there's a reason we call it the blender. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you don't mind so much, then you'll probably recognize that you as the DM can do this against your uh, player characters as well. But this is more along the lines of like, you know, people who have a problem with flanking tend to have more of the antagonistic kind of uh, bent to their DMing, in my opinion. Um, you know, I might be wrong. I just think that it's, it's important to recognize that good tactics win the battle. It doesn't have to be all about action economy. So even if you have a, well, actually, especially with the rogue, rogue only gets one attack. Flanking uh, for the rogue is great because it gives them advantage on that attack, which triggers sneak attack. But at the same time, their sneak attack also triggers if there's another character within five feet in general. So it kind of meshes a little weird uh, in terms of how the sneak attack feature works. Um, there's like some overlap and, and unnecessary advantage kind of thing going on. Um, but uh, in general, I think that flanking is, is good. I think you should reward players for good positioning. And then when you have taught them to position well after a while and flank every single creature they come across, that's when you bring in another creature and fireball them. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's ways to get around it without being upset that your creature is stuck between seven different blades and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of how I feel about it. I don't have much else to say. Um, I've got a little bit on flanking. Uh, as a DM, I use it. Um, and also, that isn't to say I recommend every DM use it. Um, I have very specific reasoning why I like it. Um, it is incredibly powerful of a statistical bonus. I've heard other DMs suggest uh, lowering the bonus, say like a conditional modifier plus one or plus two. That's how older editions of D&D used to award flanking. Um, my hesitation with that is just that D&D fifth edition has so few conditional modifiers. I think that it's 
a little awkward to try to introduce conditional modifiers suddenly into a flanking rule. Um, it's just more for the players to keep track of. Uh, I've seen two figures. Both of them are probably the, the, the right answer is probably in between. Essentially, if you award a creature with flanking, you're awarding them a plus four or a plus five bonus to their attack roll, which is really significant. Um, the reason I like using it is that it allows for more varied character builds, though. And what I mean by that is if you don't play by flanking, which I've played in games with before, um, ranged characters tend to be more effective because they're getting the same kind of attack bonus, but without the risk of engaging in melee combat. So it becomes more of a game about which in reality is a little bit more realistic. It becomes a game about how can we position? How can we hide? How can we get behind cover? How can we, you know, lob things in and hit them from afar so that we can stay back? Um, I don't think that's bad game design. And I think that's a super legitimate experience. But then what you're going to see uh, are virtually no tank characters. You're going to see a lot of ranged dex characters and a lot of spell casters. So to give melee characters an edge, basically now the priority for players is do I create a tough melee character that can take some hits, but also is more likely to hit because they're in melee versus a ranged character that's safer. And yes, they can get the archery fighting style, which gives them a, a plus two bump, but it's not as significant as the plus four plus five bump that the melee characters are getting. So melee characters are more likely to hit with flanking also more likely to take damage Ranged characters are less likely to take damage, but also a little less likely to hit. So to me, that now adds an interesting choice for your personal character and also an interesting element when creating a party dynamic. So it's, all right, I'll play the ranger who will stay back and shoot the bow. You play the barbarian that will run in and flank with the paladin or something. So, and what it's also done is I've played in a lot of really cool games where the party dynamic is built around flanking. So we actually just uh, played through Frost Maiden with you, Ian. And it was really cool because we played with, played with four players. There was a, a pretty interesting melee ranger build. There was a melee fighter build and there was a weird multi-class rogue barbarian paladin melee build. And my character was an order domain cleric. So I stayed back, but because the other three of them would just run in and flank, not only could I heal and support as necessary, but each time I healed someone, I could, I, I could be sure that I could use voice of authority to add to the damage uh, boost by allowing them to use their reaction right away. So when you allow for flanking, you can see some pretty interesting party dynamics uh, start to emerge. Uh, no, no, I didn't. Not on flanking. Sorry. Um, the your cadence uh, threw me off at the end of the sentence. Yeah, and I was no, waiting it threw for the me drop. off too. <laughs> yeah, I went, it, I went. It, yeah, it really did. I um, <laughs> I, I caught myself and I'm like, no, no more words. <laughs> no more words. <laughs> so no yeah, more. no, that 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 was on me. Uh, mo moving moving towards our our next uh our next rule here. So our next rule has to do with diagonals. Uh, so we're still working on the uh, square grid versus hexagonal grid thing. 
Uh, and in the player's handbook, they present a simple method for counting movement and measuring range on a grid. Every uh, square is five feet, even if you're moving diagonally. This is fast in play, but if you know anything about geometry, it kind of breaks the laws of uh, physics and such and is completely inaccurate over long distances. So this is an optional rule that can provide more realism, which, you know, what we say about realism versus escapism. Uh, now, when measuring range or moving diagonally on a grid, the first diagonal square counts as five feet, but the second one counts as 10 feet. This pattern of five feet and then 10 feet continues when you're counting diagonally, even if you're moving horizontally or vertically between different bits of diagonal movement. For example, a character might move one square diagonally five feet and then move three squares straight 15 feet and then another square diagonally 10 feet for a total of 30 feet. This is cool and I definitely haven't used this rule to the correct amount that I should have uh, in a lot of my games. Uh, that is to say where I have employed this. Otherwise, I just like, I just hand wave it. But this is this is a tricky rule because I have seen people do it where it's like the first one's five feet and every single other diagonal one afterwards is 10 feet. But that doesn't make geometrical sense, obviously. So I think alternating between five and 10 uh, can be, this can be a good rule. This can be a good rule for uh, terrain that is a little difficult to navigate. And we've seen this, I believe, in the last uh, few rules where we were talking about navigating around a structure like a tree or a corner. You can't cut through the corner of the space that the tree is occupying. And so this would play more uh, into the game if you counted it, uh, the, uh, the diagonal five feet, 10 feet, five feet, 10 feet. And, and I think that's good. I think that's fine. Um, but like I said, at the start of this or at the halfway point of this, um, a, lot of, a lot of these rules are just like a lot to keep track of if you're already used to a certain thing. So it's good to just introduce your rules one at a time, get used to it, see how it feels and drop it if you need to. Yes. Are, are you ready for me to end the diagonal rules entire career? Oh, yes, I am. Actually, this ought to be good. I'm so ready for I, the spice. Yeah, I think this rule is so stupid. I just I'm so I've seen it in play. Um, and I somewhat understand what they're going for. And this is not an optional. This is a base rule in Pathfinder second edition. I think it's so stupid. Like, and here's why. I understand that it's not like it's not geometrically accurate. What about fifth edition combat is geometrically accurate? Nobody stands with five foot squares where we're sitting there waiting and keeping a five foot space in between each other. It just, uh, I think there is a YouTube content creator called Shadowversity, which shows like medieval combat and stuff. And they, they were showing the unrealisticness of five foot, spaces just for combat in general so already this is an abstracted game system in order to visually represent some action that's going on that is not diegetic to the narrative so to try to insert clunky geometric laws of diagonals by going 5 10 5 just makes the game experience frustrating and it says, this is inaccurate over long distances. 
who is using a five foot grid to abstractly represent long distances? It doesn't make sense, right? You would use narrative or theater of the mind for long distances. Miniatures are to represent tactical decision-making. And so, and and when you see it in play, it also doesn't make sense. So the 5105 becomes so restrictive, it's the opposite problem where it's not economical at all to move like diagonals. So you might as well just move in like uh, in cardinal directions, right? So I cannot stand this rule and it slows down gameplay because then it starts to emerge arguments. Well, can I make an athletics check to try to, you know, overcome the diagonals? Um, is there something my character, can I take a bonus action so I can move? It just, it, it becomes such a hassle and so crunchy in play that it virtually makes D&D positioning a, a hassle instead of a joy. And so when you're thinking of it, like just spaces on a game board, yes, you can move diagonally. It, it makes the combat that much more interesting. I think this rule is stupid. So that's just my spicy take, bust out the ghost pepper, because I think that this is the stupidest rule and you shouldn't implement it at your table. Yes, yes, John, let the rage flow through you. (laughs) All right, so John just ended this whole career here. I don't have enough experience uh, in terms of like looking up like historical accuracy and stuff like that. I remember XP to level three did a video where they were like, let's see what happens if we make like five foot squares and actually try to fight each other with like these foam swords. And, and it kind of made sense in a way because they, what they said was they're not always in the center of the five foot square. So I guess if you like have five feet of space to like move around in, that's like your combat zone. And actually I I looked up something else um, recently, which was that the edge of that square or the edge of this five foot radius or whatever, or not five foot, but like two and a half foot radius or something. um, Three foot radius is called the red zone or the, like the red bubble or something like that, the blood zone. And it's like basically the edge of where your blade can reach if you just like hold out your arm. So I can see where D- where Watsi was like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, five feet radius or five foot, five foot square, you know, that, that, that makes sense, you know, in terms of like keeping your, your space in combat and stuff. But the fact is that just most combat doesn't do that. So like you, you, you're more likely to be like on like in front of them, like on the edge of each of your squares, like right next to each other with your swords and stuff, rather than making these long sweeping kinds of attacks. But yeah, so I think that's, that's, that that's fair, you know, like whatever, you know, let's just hand, that's what, that's why I usually hand wave this. But all right. So the next rule uh, and the last rule of, of the grid here has to do with facing this is going to get clunky. So uh, if you want the precision of knowing which way a creature is facing, consider this optional rule. A creature has a front arc. Okay. The direction it faces, left and right side arcs, and a rear arc. A creature can change its facing when it ends its move on its turn and also as a reaction to another creature's move, which like if you if you're following along it makes sense but like i said ow 
my brain. Uh, a creature can normally target only creatures in its front or side arcs. It cannot see into its rear arc. This means an attacker in the creature's rear arc makes attack rolls against it with advantage. So this is where sneak attack might be uh, possible to proc without, uh, without the help of another uh, character. Shields apply attack roll. Wait a minute. No. Shields apply to shields apply attack rolls. Shields apply their bonus AC only to attacks against the front arc or the same side arc as the shield. So now you have to keep track of which hand you're holding your shield in. So that's another thing. Uh, for example, a fighter with a shield on the left arm can only use it on uh, attacks from the front and left arcs. All right. Now, feel free to determine that not all creatures have every type of arc. Oh boy, now it's not standard. For example, an amorphous ochre jelly could treat all of its arcs as front ones, while a hydra might have three front arcs and one rear arc. On squares, you pick one side of the creature's space on the direction it's facing. Draw a diagonal line outward from each corner of this side to determine the square in its front arcs the opposite side of the space determines its rear arc in the same way the remaining spaces on the side arcs uh and, and on hexes it's different and you determine the front rear side arc requiring more judgment uh you create a wedge shape uh, all right pick Pick one side of the creature's space and create a wedge shape expanding out from their foe. No, from there. Sorry, it's dark in my room. From there for the front arc and another on the opposite side of the creature for the rear arc. The remaining spaces to either side of the creature are on its side arcs. And then the last thing that they say in this is that a square and a hex might be in more than one arc. <laughs> Depending on how you draw the lines from a creature's space, if more than half of the hex or square is in one arc, that is its arc. If it's split exactly down the middle, use this rule. <laughs> if half of it lies on the front arc, it's in that arc. If half of it is in the side arc and the rear arc, it's on the side arc. God, <laughs> so Ian, Raven Queen, take me now. I, I know how exasperated you are. And I know I just ended Diagonal's whole career, but I'm going to make Facing's whole career because honestly, I kind of love this. As complicated and stupid and clunky as it can feel, I am actually here for it. And that's because what it does is it takes D&D's random amorphous abstract representation and it adds an interesting choice to now like, um, it adds an interesting element of choice within the positioning of your character. Um, I would say I wouldn't do this and flanking. If I were to ever not use flanking, this is what I would replace it with. I will also say, um, in a way, uh, hexes can be a lot easier if you're determining arcs. And the reason is you have the side of the hex that your creature is facing. Let's just say it's humanoid for the sake of argument. And then the, the two hex faces next to it um, will also determine the arc, right? So the game that I'm actually designing that I mentioned earlier with, uh, with mechs, 
um, is based off of a, uh, an interlock game called Mechton and Mechton used hexes and used this arc system. And in fact, part of it was like, you could use a certain amount of movement to rotate your character up to three sides. So it got very kind of technical. Now the difference is in a game system like that. Uh, there are actually very few action options. You basically like shoot, try to poke something with a melee attack, or you get behind cover. Like there's not a whole lot of, the positioning is where a lot of the decision-making happens because the action resource economy isn't as complex as D&D. Now, that being said, I do think there are ways to simplify this. I do think that you know, a lot of builds where it's like, let's optimize AC so we never get hit suddenly become a lot more vulnerable because you can consistently have a rear side that gets attacked. I think that um, that if your argument against flanking is that it's too powerful and it's too easy to create the condition um, with facing, I think that now you create strong choices and Yes, one melee creature can get advantage because they hit their rear side, but uh, it, it just makes combat so much more intricate. I actually really like facing. I think that it's clunky, obviously. I think that it's getting into some of the game's minutia. I do think that for groups that have been playing D&D for a while, this is a great way to spice up combat without needing to homebrew uh, too many things. That being said, I definitely don't recommend it for every table. Like automatic successes, I can pretty safely guarantee for uh, games that involve beginners or veterans alike. This is definitely for groups that have a pretty firm understanding of action economy and positioning already. This is a great way to start to add some add some spice to to the tactics of combat. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um even though it was a pain to read, uh, I think that if you just break it down a little bit more and like maybe just take into account like one or two of the things, um, then it can even, even that much can be helpful. Just like, for example, the shield thing, just having an AC uh, bump from the front versus from behind uh, makes a lot of sense in terms of like more realistic combat. I do enjoy, uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, I do enjoy more realistic combat when it comes to trying to make it more exciting. Like I've I've gotten past the point where it's like, oh, I got I can like flavor text a lot of stuff. Like I love flavor text. I love I love writing exactly how I'm doing my moves or how I'm casting my spells. Um, but this can be a good mechanical way to reflect the uh, the decisions that I'm making in combat uh, in order to make it more advantageous for myself. Um, so if I was to use this, like you said, John, um, before I had to duck out for a second, um, you know, doing this instead of advantage and flanking um, would probably be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I think what really got me was this really big chunk of text. You kind of have to draw it out uh, in your mind and maybe on paper to get a good idea of what it's talking about. Uh, and unfortunately, the Dungeon Master's Guide doesn't do that. Uh, it only has the diagrams from what I can see uh, regarding um, flanking and half cover and three quarters cover. Uh, 
for the, for this kind of stuff. So, you know, draw it out. Maybe it'll make a little bit more sense for you. Um, if you're feeling like a DM who wants to increase combat besides uh, increasing the difficulty of the encounter or coming up with new gimmicks or something like that, um, this, this could be very rewarding. Um, yeah, the last thing I'll add on this one is for these combat rules, um, it's not a bad idea. The, a lot of these rules, especially if it's going to make your game more complex, I wouldn't add this mid-campaign. I would either wait for a current story arc to conclude in that, you know, if you're going to introduce a new rule, start it with the beginning of a story arc instead of right in the middle of things. Um, also not a bad idea to teach or tell your players, just be honest, like, hey, I'm really interested in what this would do to the game. Um, can we play a one-shot? where it's not really going to be story heavy. It's, it's to play test a lot of these combat things. So we're going to try a, a really loose, maybe silly story with uh, three combat encounters that are linked somehow. And we're going we're gonna to play with these new rules to see if the, the rules work better or if really they're just too complex for what we want out of our game. So I think that running a one-shot with some of these variant custom rules can be a great way to both teach your players and teach yourself about what value they might have or what hiccups they might add to. Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons and Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher. Ian, uh, to continue, we're actually going to be going on to Madness, which I haven't decided if it's a variant, an optional rule, or what kind of rule it is, but it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So, uh, so yeah, you can take it away with the definition and everything. Uh, so, Madness can be short-term, long-term, or indefinite. Most relatively mundane effects impose short-term madness, which lasts for just a few minutes. More horrific effects or cumulative effects can result in long-term or indefinite madness. A character afflicted with short-term madness is subjected to an effect on the short-term madness table for 1d10 minutes. A character afflicted with long-term madness suffers an effect on the long-term madness table for 1d10 times 10 hours. And a character afflicted with indefinite madness gains a new character flaw from the indefinite madness table that lasts until cured. That last part is actually kind of interesting to me because we don't, even though we like to talk about personality, ideals, bonds, and flaws, um, we don't really address them a lot in the game uh, because they don't always, they're, they're more there to help you understand your character better, less than mechanical uh concepts of the game or on your character sheet um but what i find interesting here is that um usually when we're making our character we only have we only write down maybe like one flaw uh or one personality trait per per box basically and this is implying to me that you can have 
like more than one flaw in the in the rules of the game like it's interesting how it's um how it's implied that you know usually everybody thinks there's only like one flaw or whatever that we're playing towards but you could have multiple flaws which i mean that makes sense you know like in terms of real life mechanics and stuff (laughs) mechanics of real life um in terms of like how real life works um but i don't know i i just feel like it doesn't occur to people as often um, and there are a variety of effects on the uh, short-term, long-term, and indefinite madness tables. Um, one thing I want to mention here is that uh, there has been some debate in the community uh, regarding uh, the term madness and not just the term madness, but also the effects that are on these tables and how they pertain to people who may have uh, mental health issues or uh, other things like that. and. Um, I have, I have friends, I have community members who have stated that they feel very uncomfortable with how madness is portrayed in D&D, that they feel that they can uh, see, um, I don't know, people they know, or even themselves in some of these, some of these traits and some of these uh, effects, uh, and that this, you know, makes them feel uncomfortable. So I will say that it's not so much in, in this case, I, I feel like personally, there's arguments to be made for either side, and I am always going to respect how my players feel at the table. And that is the most important thing. So if I have players that feel uncomfortable with madness, even though I myself am not entirely sold on either argument, because it's very, very complicated, uh, because it's not something that D&D wasn't designed with this argument in mind, with this debate in mind. There was never like, uh, you know, back in the day, this was made in the 70s and we all know how mental health was treated back in the 70s. So of course this is 5e, so you'd expect there to be changes and there have been, there's been a lot of changes. But um, if my players feel uncomfortable at the table with me employing the madness rules, I will not be using it. And if they feel uncomfortable with me using madness as a term, I will probably opt for the uh, what, what is considered the more um, polite term or even more accurate term, which is stress, because that's what basically this is, is that your character goes through certain stressors and it causes certain effects. So that is that is what I want to say uh, as far as my personal feelings towards uh, how madness is ruled in D and D for the ter- for the purposes of this uh, of this read through of the rules and us judging whether or not we like how it is executed in the game, we will probably continue to refer to it as madness throughout. Um, but it is just one section of this uh, episode. It is uh, it is definitely uh, going to be an interesting one. Yeah, um, I thought that was really well said, and I I agree with your your assessment there. Um, there are some uh, some specifics to point out here too. So uh, on page two fifty eight, where it starts, one of the things that this rule highlights is that um, this is a specific rule uh, for games with a strong horror themed. And if you look at the short term madness table. Uh, like you said, Ian, a lot of these 
things are just stress responsors, right? So for example, one of the, like the short-term madness results that you can roll is that your character is stunned or your character um, just begins it babbles and is incapable of normal speech or spell casting, which can mean like they just, if say like you have a spell caster that's frightened, they can't put the words together because their nervous system is locking up. Um, so definitely cool for changing the name to something that's more appropriate. It was um, just as like a something to consider. And I, I'm not exactly, like you said, I'm not in support of this argument and I'm not necessarily against it either. Um, I was talking to, uh, to my sister who was our episode three guest about this. And one of the things she brought up was that there's this, there's definitely a modern conversation that can happen when it comes to this. And madness is an antiquated term, but also we might be playing in an antiquated world when we're playing say fifth edition. Like if we're playing a dark fantasy game, like in the Witcher, um, in both the, the, the books, the video game and the TV series of the Witcher, there is some really dark antiquated stuff that reminds us that thank goodness we're living in modern times, you know? So if your group is comfortable with kind of the historical representation, which again, I'm not like necessarily saying you should play like that. It's just, I can see a group being okay with the term like this especially if they're going to try to play as if they're in, say, the Middle Ages, right? So for me, I actually, one of the things that I, I disagree with is even seeing something where it says a character afflicted with indefinite madness gains a character flaw. I really don't like those categories of role-playing um, role prompts, I guess, would be the best way to put it where you have personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws, and you're supposed to gain inspiration for playing up to them. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll say to my players when they're trying to develop strong characters in strong characterization, right, um, is I say start with two traits and a quirk. And by a quirk, I don't mean like, oh, that girl's so quirky. I, I mean just something that seems to go against the other two traits. So for example, like if you've got Let's say we're creating a character that's a noble woman and she's like, I don't know, her two traits are that she's well-dressed and fashionable. She uh, has all this fancy stuff, but she has like a potty mouth, right? For me, the potty mouth would be the quirk in that it seems to go against the grain of the archetype that you think you're creating. Um, and the other thing to me is a lot of these, like if I'm looking at the... Um, what they consider madness things, to me, these could also, I definitely know players in our circle that would opt into these things as like, how can I experience this game from a perspective that is not my own as a way to build empathy? So, and, and, I, and like I said, it doesn't, I, the term madness largely is inaccurate for a lot of this, but what I think that the value of, just looking at the rules without the baggage that the rules are begging for, uh, a lot of times you can create compelling characters. And my favorite example of, say, a character that has a trait that many people would consider a flaw is, I don't know, if, did you ever watch the show Monk, where he's um, he's a detective with, uh, with OCD, 
But because of that, when he goes into like a crime scene, he can like figure out like exactly what happened based on something like really minor. There was like one episode where one of the fellow detectives was describing that like um, they were walking into uh, into a crime scene and they were pretty much about to declare it like, oh, this woman took her own uh, life. And like, uh, they're like, well, how did she do that? And they're like, oh, well, I think she took some pills. And Monk, the detective was like, oh, she couldn't have because there's no water near here. So she couldn't have like, there is no water to take them with. And so because of that, they figured out it was actually a murder, whoa. But that was an example of how that trait was a superpower that gave him a unique perspective and a unique contribution to that show's narrative. And I mean, TTRPGs are different than a show, but I guess my point being that I, I disagree with that these have to be flaws and that they have to be inflicted and also that they should be cured, right? Because there is this this thing later on on page uh, 260 where they talk about, you know, oh, just cast calm emotions. That'll make them better. <laughs> like to me, and I, I guess like from one perspective, let's say you're in an eldritch horror game and there is some outside parasite like stranger things that attaches itself to the base of your spine and is making you see things. A remove curse spell may make sense, but this isn't to say that we're supporting game mechanics, <laughs> trying to embody like certain real world struggles people have to go to as, you know, you're, you're less than by having these struggles, you know, and they should be cured through magic. Um, I, I just, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting, and, it, and like you said, Ian, it's a very nuanced, complex topic. But the, the first thing I guess would be to make to understand and be on the same page with what your players are doing. I definitely don't recommend like just being in combat number four of a session and then being like, all right, roll a wisdom save for madness out of nowhere, depending on what kind of horror themed or specific campaign topics you and your group want to explore. Um, this might be a starting point for a conversation. And I'm especially actually, it's the short-term table where there's a realism to the nervous system responses to violence. There might be some gameable material there because, you know, when you see nasty violence, chances are, if it's your first time, it's going to be pretty, pretty impactful. So it's, it's something interesting that I, that I think we can consider, but you're, you're right. And I think it's a lot of antiquated terms from D&D's legacy, unfortunately. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree with you there. There is a very, uh, very good conversation that we could have. Uh, honestly, we could probably take up a whole episode just talking about the nuance that madness brings to the table. Uh, unfortunately, that's not what this episode is about. So I, I don't want to uh, go too much further down this road. Um, but there was something that you said that struck a chord with me, which was uh, embodying some of these uh, some of these effects, basically as as a character, to gain a better sense of empathy and sympathy for people who may actually have to deal with these kinds of things. Um, you mentioned my uh, character when we were off camera. You mentioned my character Rowan earlier. Um, I think I mentioned her in the first episode of Dragon Mind as well. And uh, Rowan 
was in a very stressful position. Um, just a small, uh, you know, look at her backstory here. Um, basically, uh, her family was killed in, in a horrific fire, uh, which turned out to be dragon fire. So that was pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Um, and, uh, and um, she uh, basically took a vow that she would somehow be able to bring them back. And it involved a little bit of time travel shenanigans. And of course, as we all know, time travel never works like you want it to. Uh, and so she essentially gained well, gained, she essentially became um, a subject to, with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I do not, as a player, have PTSD, and at least not that I'm aware. Uh, and um, uh, I don't know a lot of people with PTSD, but I do know a little bit about it. And so I wanted to play a character with PTSD to better understand what it might be like to go through that at least on a small level because you can never really emulate the whole thing and this was important to me i'm not really sure why uh i was in a dark place i guess you could say when i made rowan uh but only in terms of character creation dark place uh i was actually having a really great time joining DD and everything i was just but for some reason i had traumatic character uh on the mind so uh i decided to go with that and i genuinely felt the emotions that Rowan was going through a lot of the time. And that was surprising to me. And that's what really pushed me towards uh, content creation like this, where we try to become our best selves through gaming and, and look at, you know, the infinite lenses of D&D &D and compare it to our own lives and things like that. So um, I think that uh, among other things, this kind of mechanic can under the right conditions, uh, assist in gaining empathy and sympathy for people who do go through this kind of thing. Um, now, that's another conversation to have, by the way, about how, how much you can emulate another person's story when you have no experience of it in real life um, and, and how to properly and respectfully do that. I think that with Rowan, I did a pretty decent job because I didn't do any of the, like Ro Rowan, for one thing, another or for another thing was a woman. So like I did, I did my best to play her as a person who happens to be a woman <laughs> and, and as a three-dimensional character um, with PTSD. So <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, let's, let's uh, move on from this. Moving on, we're going to page 261 for those of you folks who are following at home. Uh, this is going to be regarding experience points. Oh, very exciting. We all have very strong feelings about experience points at uh, Incendium D&D. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there's a couple of ways you can do this, basically. Here we go. So XP can be rewarded through a variety of ways. Usually XP is rewarded through combat. And there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can divide it up between your people and... Uh, or the person who gets the last hit gets all of it, that kind of thing. And so that's one way to do it. And I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think it is rewarding to an extent, but arguably it can create some competition between the players that may be undue, especially uh, if antagonism begins to breed. So then we get to our milestone options. So instead of rewarding 
uh, XP like individually or as like a hundred at a time or something like that. Uh, you can also reward it as uh, uh, for when characters complete significant milestones. Uh, when preparing your adventure, designate certain events or challenges as milestones, as with the following examples. Uh, accomplishing a series of goals necessary to complete an adventure, discovering a hidden location or piece of information relevant to the adventure, or reaching an important destination. This is usually in regards to story-based stuff, as opposed to combat-based stuff. And so uh, you can treat a major milestone as a hard encounter and a minor milestone as an easy encounter. So this is where you're still rewarding individual XP, 100 XP for a good achievement and uh, 50 XP for less than that. Usually we tend to level advance without XP, which is the next part. So you can do away the experience points entirely and control the rate of character advancement. Advanced characters based on how many sessions they play or when they accomplish significant story goals in the campaign. In either case, you tell the players when their character gains a level. This method of level advancement can be particularly helpful if your campaign doesn't include much combat or includes so much combat that it, tracking XP becomes tiresome, which, yeah, uh, I can see that. So you get the session-based advancement. Um, there's a good rate of session-based advancement, which is that uh, they reach second level after the first session of play, third level after another session, and fourth after two more, less, uh, two more sessions, scaling kind of like that, where it's like five after six more sessions or something like that. Um, and then there's also story-based advancement. When you let the story of the campaign drive advancement, you, you award levels when adventurers accomplish significant goals in the campaign. Uh, now, like I said, I prefer Milestone. Milestone is definitely uh, the way to go, in my opinion, especially regarding uh, online play, I would say. Um, it just smooths things out um you know xp gets a little crunchy and the higher level you go the more xp is required to level up and i just don't like combat that much uh i like it but i don't like it so much that i want to go and fight a million different things or one big thing and then have my character die because we decided to take on a challenge that's too you know big for us uh now this isn't to say that it's a bad way to do things. Uh, there's, it, it comes from the old school style D&D &D where it's more of a dungeon crawl, um, in my opinion. I mean, that's where it originated from anyway. Um, but basically, there was a lot more combat in old school D&D. &D. Uh, I would argue that we've moved away from combat in 5th edition, uh, at least in terms of creating more of a custom story that is collaborative and rewarding rather than just dungeon delving, which, like I said, nothing wrong with dungeon delving. I'm sure it's a great time when done right. Um, I have yet to do it right. So <laughs> that is pretty much my opinion on it. Um, definitely go with milestone leveling if you want to have more story focus. Yeah, um, I, I agree. <laughs> uh, they, they just list out all these different ways to deal with experience points. My the method I found that works the best is the last of the list level advancement without XP and make it story-based advancement. That's because <laughs> really what is XP, but a measurement of how much your characters have achieved, but also the there's a point where keeping track of the little things 
starts to take away from the focus on the narrative. You start focusing on what can I do to pop up my XP? Whereas if you remove that part of the game's interface to even pay attention to, players are really just want to see where their characters go. Um, and then the, the section above, session-based advancement, I think is just a way of just measuring how many sessions have we, have we stayed at this level? Ah, four of them. Is there a reason we shouldn't level up is the other thing. Um, so that's, I, I tend to um, like try to read where my players are at when it comes to deciding when to level them up. There have been times where my players have actually asked me if they couldn't, if they, if they don't want to level up. Because I, you want to let each level, you want them to get used to the level that they're at and whatever new uh, features or spells that they get at that level. You want them to be competent at that before you level them up again. One of the things that I definitely made the mistake of early on in DMing is leveling them up too fast too often um, to the point that there were some sessions it'd be like, all right, increase by three levels, sometimes I'd say. And they would get overwhelmed by so many new features and abilities, they wouldn't really know what to do with their characters. And they would end up just powering up their the, the stuff that they already knew rather than be interested in the new stuff that they, uh, that they just acquired. So my recommendation for DMs really is the story-based advancement. Just no XP, don't keep track of it. Um, just level it up when it feels good to do so. It's super easy in the modules because usually it's like each chapter, it'll say what level that chapter is for. <laughs> so I know Dragon Heist, they're like, all right, chapter one, make first level characters. Chapter two, make level them up to level two. <laughs> like it was pretty, it was pretty straightforward what uh <laughs> what the recommendations were, you know? So with this whole thing on experience points, four variant slash optional rules. Um, I did group together the sections on epic boons and alternatives to epic boons um, that are on page 230 uh, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, mostly because these things felt like they should be grouped together under character progression. Just the general topic of what do you give your characters when? And epic boons are essentially bonus features that you can grant characters once they have reached 20th level and you're trying to figure out how to still reward them. Um, what's interesting is I'm not sure you really need to level up your characters higher than 20. The game already doesn't really support that high level of play to begin with, unfortunately. Um, but the, the boons are there. We're not going to go through all of them. But the other thing I, I, I think is funny is how hit or miss some of the boons are. Some of them, you look at them and you're like, wow, that's game breaking. There are other ones where you're like, wow, my sixth level changeling could do the same thing. <laughs> so it's, it is kind of a mixed bag. Um, but I would say if you're going to progress your game past 20th level, just don't be afraid to get weird with it. Because, I mean, if you're going to go past level 20 where the game's balanced for it already, might as well have fun with it. Yeah, uh, honestly, I would actually use the boons as more like story point kind of things. Um, not really trying to, uh, like, increase the power of players uh, necessarily, um, but giving good story rewards. That's how I would look at this. Um, 
the way I like to think of it is like the Daedric artifacts in Elder Scrolls. Um, they're there, they are out there, they exist, uh, and you can have a perfectly great game without getting them. Uh, but you could also have uh, another great game with focusing on getting all of them and then in oblivion having to give one up because that's dumb. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that boons can be cool, especially if you have, um, you know, a character that is highly connected to their, their deity uh, or their patron. Um, sometimes that can be a cool way to have an interesting role-playing moment, but um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too worried about boons. It's kind of, I think it's kind of an artifact, to be honest, of the reward system of D&D's legacy. Um, just always trying to reward the players for everything they do and make that feel rewarding. Um, I think it's grasping at straws a little bit. I don't know if there's any need for that kind of thing when we have such a story-focused game already. So moving on to proficiency dice here on page 263 of the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. This optional rule replaces a character's proficiency bonus with a proficiency die, adding more randomness to the game and making proficiency less reliable uh, as an indicator of mastery. Uh, instead of adding a proficiency bonus to an ability check, an attack roll, or saving throw, the character's player uh, rolls a die. The proficiency die table shows you which die or dice to roll as determined by the character's level. Whenever a feature such as the rogue's expertise lets a character double his or her proficiency bonus, the player rolls the proficiency die twice uh, instead of once. This option is intended for player characters and non-player characters who have levels, as opposed to monsters who don't. Um, and, uh, and it goes kind of like this. First to fourth level uh, is a plus two bonus, and that gives you a D4. And then as it goes to plus three, that's a D6. And plus four is a D8. Plus five is a D10. And plus six is a D12. Uh, I think this is interesting, but I don't like it. Uh, and the reason I don't like it is because I like what we've been saying about characters who are built to do a certain thing good, even if they're not good at other things, that whole min-maxing, you know, mindset optimization, as it were. Um, I think I like how that is done. And I don't think that there's a need to change it. What this reminds me of is Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is a game that uses a boon bane system. Uh, this means that you, you still have bonuses, which I think is nice, uh, but when you have advantage or disadvantage or something like that, something that affects your skill check or attack roll, um, the DM can call to have you have a boon or bane, which is like bless or bane, really. Um, except it stacks. So uh, you get like a D6 or something. I forget what the actual die is, but let's say one, one boon is a D6. Two boons is two D6 and it keeps going like that. And then in the opposite direction is you take away one D6 or you take away two D6 when you have a bane. Um, I think that's pretty cool. I don't think that proficiency dice is necessary in a game that's already relying so much on the dice that we have to generate an element of randomness, especially if the party likes wild magic. I, uh, you know, you could try it. Uh, it might be cool, but I'm not as, I'm not as sold on the concept, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this one. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm saying a lot more recently is paying attention to what I call the interface of the game, how easy it is to resolve things, how easy it is for players to have a firm grasp of knowing what they're doing and understanding the system. So in a way, even like the regular player sheet for a lot of players is not a strong interface because they get confused of where stuff is. For me, I know how to navigate it, but that doesn't mean it's best for everybody. And I've seen players come up with pretty cool solutions of custom character sheets and everything. Um, to me, proficiency dice, trying to figure out which which of the two dice to roll, doing the math of adding the two together and everything. Um, I think that it'll add slowdown for not a very good reward. <laughs> I think that the cost is too great. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, kind of like what we're doing uh, this weekend, like having like a one shot where we try out this variant rule and see how we like it. Um, I, I do see the randomness making storytelling a lot less consistent. Um, like you said, Ian, personally, when I build a character, I like them being good at the things that they're good at. Um, I, this, and, but this isn't how every player likes it. A lot of, I've been listening to a lot of Adventuring Academy and it's pretty evident that, um, Brennan Lee Mulligan, who's the dungeon master for Dimension 20, really values the randomness. This might be a really exciting game mechanic for someone with that personality, right? I am not of that personality, mostly because I've had characters where I, like, especially beginning in D&D, this is something I'm still trying to overcome. I had, like, player characters where I'm like oh I bet they'll be good at this because I statted them this way and then I rolled bad and because I didn't have the the right kind of support I was looking for um dm wise and also I just didn't know what to ask for I didn't really know what I was doing as a player um I had a really unsatisfactory experience with my character failing and things I thought they should be good at but uh yeah, the one thing I, I think that can be interesting is, and, and I don't know how much this would affect it, but I, I do think it's silly that a rogue it can be better at Arcana than a wizard with a proficiency in Arcana. I, I think that's really silly. That just because they get the expertise class feature, that they can build themselves in a way where they can outperform um, knowledge checks or history checks more so than characters that that is their entire storytelling identity where like you can build a rogue that has better persuasion than a bard to me that's kind of silly and i think proficiency dice can do something with you know the the idea being that a rogue can sometimes just be more lucky like they get to add two proficiency dice rather than just have a greater static bonus that might be something worth looking into but I'm with you. I'm not sold yet. Yeah, and this actually harkens back to a rule that we talked about earlier, which had to do with automatic successes. Um, if your character is not under pressure, like if they're not being chased or something like that, and they can take their time and they have proficiency in the skill, then usually you're allowed to make a, or take 20, I think it is, or something like that. You take 20 on the skill. Now, because you can't crit, on a skill check, the 20 doesn't mean automatic success. It just means you did it to the best of your, the absolute best of your ability. Um, but I think that um, 
this is definitely something some people will like, but I feel like people who love fifth edition and came into fifth edition as their first uh, D and D experience will probably stray away from this one. It's not as enticing, I guess. Moving on to our ability check proficiency. This is the skill variance uh, rule. And this is on page 263 as well. Um, a skill dictates the circumstances under which a character can add his or her proficiency bonus to an ability check. Uh, most of us who are listening right now pretty much get the idea of how that works already. Um, and the rule is, with this variant rule, characters don't have skill proficiencies. Instead, each character has proficiency in two abilities, one tied to the character's class and one tied to the character's background. The ability proficiencies by class table suggests a proficiency for each class, uh, and you choose which ability is tied to each class. Uh, no, uh, to, to a given background. Sorry, I read the wrong line. Um, Starting at first level, a character adds his or her proficiency bonus to any ability check tied to one or the other of these two abilities. And then it goes down the class list and it says stuff like Barbarian gets uh, to choose strength, dexterity, or wisdom. Uh, bard gets any one uh, of them because they're a jack of all trades. Go figure. <laughs> uh, cleric gets intelligence, wisdom, or charisma. Druid gets intelligence or wisdom and the rest of it. Uh, and then the expertise feature works differently than normal under this rule as well. At first level, instead of choosing two skill proficiencies, a character with the expertise class feature chooses one of the abilities in which he or she has proficiency. Selecting an ability counts as two of the character's expertise choices. Ooh, this is confusing my head. Uh, if the character would gain an additional skill proficiency, that character instead gains uh, or selects rather another ability uh, check in which to gain proficiency. John, please translate. Uh, for some reason, this is going over my head. <laughs> so basically, you know how right now in the game... Um your skill proficiencies are specific distinctions but they're all tied to like an ability so like you could have a wisdom survival or a wisdom medicine check or a wisdom perception instead what they're saying is you just clump them under that same ability so you don't have a perception bonus or a or a survival bonus you have your wisdom bonus so when you build your character, instead of selecting uh, four skill proficiencies on average or whatever, like if you're, I don't know, let me make an example. If you are a druid, um, you would instead be proficient in all intelligence or all wisdom checks, but just one. So that way, I, I hate this. I think it's stupid. Um, I think that there's plenty of ways that like, my character can be really perceptive, like perceptive, but not have good insight. Like, I think that the, what we have is good enough. This, and, and it even gets more complicated where at the bottom, it's like expertise works differently. Oh, ho, ho, that can't be confusing, right? So it's like at first level, instead of choosing two skill proficiencies, a character with expertise chooses one of the abilities in which they're proficient. And then 
that ability counts as two of the expertise choices. So like where a rogue would say start first level character creation and they have expertise in two skill proficiencies because there's they're consolidating skill proficiencies under what ability it's under. They're basically like, well, pick one of the abilities that you're proficient in and you have expertise in that. But also that starts to really mess with like a lot of feats in the game where like I think there's one in either Xanathar's or Tasha's the feat is like you get expertise in a skill proficiency. So now would that be you have half expertise in one of these consolidated categories or would you that just be an efficient way to build expertises in multiple categories? It, it's just, to me, this is a really, if the idea is to simplify things, it makes things too freaking complicated and also reduces the thought process behind what is my character good at and what is my character not as good at. And, and it just it removes a role-playing trigger that could add to interesting story moments. But John, don't you know complicated good? Simple bad. Well, and I, this I, is... am, I am a fan of facing, so I guess... <laughs> <laughs> you know actually facing is... and i was trying to explain spell points to someone the other day too oh, and it made their their eyes glaze over <laughs> oh wow okay well that's that bodes well um <laughs> yeah no this is this is a rule for the big brains who play D. you know this is this is for the people who really this is for the people who really like bookkeeping that you know like it's this not, is because it's supposed to be simplifying things and consolidating them but, it but it's doesn't. so much harder to conceptualize yeah and it's so much harder to build characters off of oh my god yeah it's it's just don't use this rule guys <laughs> don't don't do not, it to not us. that we're supposed right. to tell you what to do oh, we don't but... want to tell you if you want to yeah. use xp that's fine if you want to consolidate yeah. your skill proficiencies <laughs> who are we to judge if you want to make your game bad, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you wanna if you wanna just you know if you wanna be bad at dungeons and jurgens, then uh, that's up to you. Uh, <laughs> we won't stop you. No. Uh, <laughs> um, now moving on to background proficiency. Oh boy, you thought we were done with proficiency. There's two more proficiency things. Yeah, you thought um, we were done messing up skill proficiencies <laughs> to make them practically unuseful. Yeah, exactly. So we have background proficiencies. So with this variant rule, characters don't have skill or tool proficiencies. Anything that would grant the character a skill or tool proficiency provides no benefit. Whoa. Hold your horses there, partner. Instead, a character can add his or her proficiency bonus to any ability check to which the character's prior training and experience reflected in the character's background reasonably applies. So this is a this is one of those where it's like, but DM, I'm a sailor. I have a sailing background. And the DM says, well, I guess you're right. So go ahead and make your check with proficiency. Uh, I think, or, you know, the catch-all being advantage or something. But in this case, this gives you more of like a mechanical, you know, thing uh, to use, uh, at, which is the proficiency. Um, something much more substantial. 
uh, and then it goes into like examples, you know, uh, a noble could reasonably have a proficiency bonus applied to a charisma check uh, the character is making to secure audience with the king. So this one isn't as bad. You know, I, I don't think it's as bad. I keep moving away from the mic. Uh, this one isn't as bad. I do think that it could solve some issues that we have with how advantage works um, in this game where, you know, for one thing, advantage doesn't stack, neither does proficiency bonus, but at least it's like a solid bump as opposed to just more risk. But at the same time, a lot of people really like advantage. I'm not saying I don't like advantage, but we have run into some issues in the past. So this could be a substitute that enhances your game more than whatever that other one did. Uh, now, it says uh, this is also something that encourages your players to develop their histories as characters. Um, and it's not meant to encourage like endless debate of like, oh, but I should definitely have proficiency here, DM, because this and this and this. And the DM's just like, dude, just make the role. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it's not meant to create antagonism. I, I guess, honestly, you know, they don't write things in this book without a reason. Um, I suspect that at one of the game designers tables, this happened <laughs> and they were like, dude, just shut up and make the role. Like this is, I, I just remember that other rule, John, we were talking about, what was it? It was, Oh, like, it was players giving yeah. each other inspiration. And you said that it was like, it was like, this will seem like a home rule. They just wanted to throw in the DMG. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is like a similar thing, except it was a situation that happened where they're like, make sure that this doesn't create antagonism between you and your players because it happened to me and I don't want it to happen to you guys. Um, so I, I think that's cool. Um, I don't yeah. think, oh, and then of course it talks about expertise again. Good God. Um, so the one thing I have about this background proficiency rule is we already have a rule that very cleanly shows this, choosing your background. What I don't get about this is now we're just making arguments. Like, I know, Ian, you just said, like, the point of it isn't, but this is something that invites, well, my character has this background in this thing, so I think that they should get this. Like, to me, this is a really simple solution if you're trying to figure out, like, how to have your background feel meaningful and have some game mechanics to add it. Like if it's something that relates to your background, give the character advantage on the role. There you go. <laughs> like, and to me, where this would be most impactful would be in a, a specific subset of skill proficiencies. So to me, like if say you have a specific background, like I actually, I'm to me, I, like insight and like perception and like sensory checks are trained things that make sense based on your, well, I guess they could make sense based on your background too, but this is part of creating your character's uh, backstory, right? Which is when you're choosing your skill proficiencies at character creation, what things did they pick up before they were trained in their class? What things did they pick up as part of being trained in their class? To, to me, if I were playing a game like this, it would feel so unstable because it's basically like, oh, player, why do you feel like you're now proficient in everything? Like, And basically they can say, well, as part of my, my elaborate 11-page backstory. So it, to me, because it's removing 
the um the banks to the river and allowing it to overflood. Um, I, I really struggle with liking this. <laughs> I just I don't like it. Yeah, and and you know, not to say none of these rules have logic. Like a lot of these rules make sense, you know, they make sense in the terms of like trying to emulate realism or trying to balance the game in a different way that makes other rules obsolete, like flanking or whatever. Um, But that doesn't mean they're good storytelling devices. And that is kind of something we should always be referring back to that storytelling. This should make our storytelling easier. It should make it more immersive Uh, and and I think that this 10, this is like, this makes it more, de- it even says in the description, this makes it more of a debate and it makes it more of like, oh, DM, please give me proficiency on this, this charisma check so that I might succeed. For this game is you also do proficiency dice and you consolidate everything. <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, I, I think we've already like again beat this dead horse but he let me beat it more um I I think that this is a great example of how removing game structure can harm your narrative and a lot of it's not an either or it's not either we focus on the mechanics or oh now we're story-based people so we don't care about the mechanics it's paying attention to the interrelation of both how too much in one direction causes a breakdown in both so yeah all right. And then it talks about expertise and stuff. And, and honestly, it's almost not even worth reading. Um, basically, you know, instead, oh God, instead of applying, all right, hold on. Oh God, I, I just got to read this for myself for a second. Um, oh Lord. Um, so the, the expertise in this variant rule works like this. Basically, you have a background and that background is considered general. So it applies to, so it gives you proficiency generally in various arguments you could make about skill checks. And then expertise says, now you get to argue for specific circumstances. And it's like, I'm not playing Vampire the Masquerade. Leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> spicy take right there. Moving on. Please let us move on. Uh, We have one more, which is personality trait proficiency. I'm going to blow through this rule real quick. Uh, Basically, you don't get your skill skill proficiencies in this one. Instead, you add your proficiency bonus to an ability check directly related to your positive personality traits. Ooh, that's weird. Um, (laughs) For example, (laughs) John's just shaking his head. Um, For example, a character with a positive personality trait of I never have a plan, but I'm great at making things up as I go along, might apply the bonus, might, keyword, apply the bonus when engaging in it some off-the-cuff deception to get out of a tight spot. Uh, a player should come up with at least four positive personality traits when creating a character. Then why are we even doing it? Why not even just keep the proficiencies as they are? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's silly. It's silly. And I don't like it. Yeah. To me, (laughs) like these last two that we're covering, like they shouldn't be rules. They should just be advice. I I'm, I'm here. I'm here to shout. I've got something to say. Um, (laughs) So these two, um, like 
they're 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 these like rather than making these amorphous rules what these two can be summed up pretty easily when choosing your skill proficiencies at character creation consider how your background may be represented in the game's mechanics your positive personality traits may make you especially good or trained at certain proficiencies does your character like to talk a lot and do they seem likable a proficiency in performance or persuasion may show this easy (laughs) i just said it that's three sentences it doesn't have to be a whole page of the book (laughs) yeah it's like john said so (laughs) and then i guess oh my gosh and then they get then they punish you for having traits. If you have a negative personality trait, you guess you get disadvantage on the check. Uh, for example, a hermit whose negative trait is that they get lost in their own thoughts, they might have disadvantage on an ability check made to notice creatures sneaking up. I, I don't know. That's it was bad enough. All right. It was bad enough in my opinion. And I know I'm getting really goofy tonight um, at this recording. For those who are listening in the final cut here, we've been recording this for three to four sessions uh, and it's all been live and you could have been here to watch this and, and see all the shenanigans we cut out. Where were you when we needed you? (laughs) We needed your support um, (laughs) to go through this. but I don't like punishing characters for building their character. It's, it's not a good way to build trust through, uh, through the game between the DM and the player. Um, and, and then they talk about the expertise. Of course they do, uh, because expertise dictates everything in this game, as we all know. Uh, and if a, if a character... Uh, would gain a new skill or tool proficiency, the character instead gains a new positive personality trait. So basically this is all just trying to say that we're trying to keep track of your proficiencies without keeping track of your proficiencies or making them easy to, uh, to use, you know, to invoke. It's just not, I can see some very, you know, a small fraction of people wanting to use this in my opinion. But on the other hand, maybe the way the reason they wrote it like this was like, well, what if it worked this way? And then they just threw it in there. And, and, you know, when you're building a book and you're trying to sell like a product like D&D, you know, where you can do anything, you, you know, options are necessary. And so maybe they felt like, even if maybe they even felt like this would, doesn't apply to them. There's no personal anecdotes that I can see in this kind of like subtext here. Um, so maybe this was one they were like, I really don't like this, but technically it could work. And maybe we'll just put it in there anyway. And it's only like what? Uh, it's, it's like a quarter of the page. So like I wouldn't even less than that. Like it's not going to take up that much. It's yeah. just not necessary. Honestly, I see these two rules as they were looking at other systems and seeing which rules might be, how another system's rules would be implemented with the current framework. And they were just like, this is how you can tune your game. If you're coming from a less stable system, um, this would be how it would work with the D&D other stuff, you know? 
And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, especially since different players definitely have their own tastes and preferences. I mean, um, I've met people that they still think fifth edition is like D and D for babies. If you want to play real D and D, go play three, five or go play Pathfinder. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now.